Well, I apologize for starting uh, five minutes late, but here we go. People will continue to stream in, and um, we have a lot of people who registered to attend this event. And we also uh, have a fairly substantial online audience, we think. So welcome to everyone who is watching this live online and to those who will watch this later streamed off the Hudson website. And we hope there are many of you in that category too. Uh, I'm Charles Davidson, the publisher of The American Interest. And I also run a program at Hudson Institute. And the president of Hudson, Ken Weinstein, was supposed to be here to introduce Hudson Institute. So I will first wear my Hudson cap and welcome you to Hudson Institute. Um, and uh, the American Interest is very grateful that Hudson is lending its space for this event. Um, we published in 2011 the issue on the left, Are Plutocats Drowning Our Republic? And the genesis of this event is on, on the morning after of Brexit. I thought about all the, the wonderful prescience that the American interest has had over the years, which is, of course, underappreciated. And uh, so I called up uh, my... my uh, co-founder and partner in this endeavor, Frank Fukuyama, the morning of Brexit. And I said to him, Frank, it seems to me we were the first on these subjects that we are going to, if you will, retroview today. And Frank said, when I say the first among thought magazines and political publications and whatnot, and seriously talking about the problems of plutocracy and equality and all of this stuff. Um, and Frank said, yeah, I think that's right. And uh, so that was the genesis of this event. And the speakers here, uh, all but one, had pieces in this Our Plutocrats Drowning the Republic issue, which we published in 2011. And then we also have here today Nils Gilman, who has the cover story in the cover to your right, Leviathan Mugged. And uh, you will see that that very much plugs into what we published in 2011. So we are going to uh, start uh, with Tyler Cowan, who has a piece or had a piece in the 2011 issue, which uh, we, of course, urge you to read. And it's very easy to find all of this on the American Interest website for uh, three bucks, at least for a month. And you can cancel after a month, or you can remain a, an online subscriber. And we still, we still sell print. I don't know for how much longer for those of you who are interested in print magazines. So without further ado, thank you again to Hudson Institute, not only for the facilities, but for the extraordinary quality of the audio visual work, which is done uh, by Adam Lowe, who's sitting over there with a somewhat longer beard than a few weeks ago, which I think looks very good, Adam, by the way. And um, Tyler, let's roll. Thank you. If someone had come up to you in 1986 and said that one of our political parties would be pro-Russia and anti-NATO, and that the other one of our political parties would be in bed with Wall Street and also extremely chummy with America's most dynamic economic sector, which now is Silicon Valley. And that furthermore, the first party was the Republicans, and the second, the Democrats, and that the Republicans would still pretend to be right-wing and the Democrats left-wing. 
you literally would have thought they were insane. And in that sense, you would be right, because in some regards, our contemporary world seems to be insane, and we need to at least entertain as a default hypothesis that it is insane, right? So that's what I'm going to talk about today, but at a slightly more global level. A while back, I wrote a blog post with the title something like, What the Hell Has Gone Wrong? So that's really my topic. Uh, what the hell has gone wrong? I have absolutely no solutions, uh, but I'll sort of catalog or talk through some of the features behind a sort of collapse of order going on in some parts of the world. But let me just start with what has gone right, because that's very important. And what has gone right is pretty simple. It's huge. I'm not sure it will prove big enough to counter what has gone wrong, but what has gone right is just most of the world is a lot wealthier than before, and also a lot healthier. And you probably all know the numbers, that you can find them online. But everything I say, I'm not, not, not trying to deny this. I know it's true. I've written a lot about this myself. I am not sure that for the future emotional tenor of our world that will suffice. But it's a huge ace in the hole. It's a big positive. It's working for all of us. And again, maybe North Korea aside, even North Korea seems wealthier. The world is getting much wealthier and healthier. So that's the plus. Now, what's gone wrong? I have about 10 stories I want to tell. Some are simpler than others. Some of these stories you've heard. Let me go through just a few. <clears throat> the first story, this is for nations on the technological frontier. It's the productivity story. So since either 2000 or 1973, depending on your views on the statistics, but rates of productivity growth in US, Western Europe, Japan, have slowed down really quite a bit. So in recent years, productivity growth in the US, it might be a half of 1%. In the 1920s and 30s, it was 3%. It's a factor of six. It's a big difference, right? I wrote a book called The Great Stagnation. So people are upset because they're afraid their children will not lead better lives or even equal lives to what they did. And furthermore, within politics, there's less in the way of goodies to pass around to buy off dissent. That may be at least as important for the overall political mood. So that's the productivity story. It's the one I've looked at, I guess, the most closely. And I'm pretty convinced it's true. And I think the more years pass, the more people accept that we've been in a productivity crisis for some while. When Peter Thiel, Michael Mandel, myself, we first put this forward, a lot of people said we were crazy. But now, after more years, it's become, I'd say, the mainstream default position. The second story, <clears throat> a bit more complicated, more moving pieces. It's what you might call the globalization story, right? We all know our world is more globalized. I think it's over the years 1990 to 2007, like international trade grows at a rate three times of the rate of world GDP growth. That's actually phenomenal. Three times more. So the world's a lot more globalized. And you hear so many different conjectures about this pissing off voters, leading to Brexit, support for Trump in the media. Those tend to be very sloppy. There's so many different aspects to globalization and what actually is causing what. I've never seen sorted out even the possibilities, much less what is true. But some of the typical stories you hear is the trade with China story and loss of manufacturing jobs, uh, the immigration story, quite distinct. And another one you don't quite hear enough about, I would say the uh, reallocation 
of capital from wealthier countries to less wealthy countries. Part of that is called outsourcing, but it's actually broader than that. But at different rates and paces and degrees and different places at different points of time, you have the globalization story going on. For me, I think the most important angle of the globalization story is maybe simply that people feel they have lost control. So when things are more foreign, so you're an English person and you walk through London, London feels, and indeed is, central London, especially a kind of foreign city. You don't feel that, quote unquote, your people control London anymore. Is this rational? Is some of it prejudiced? Is some of it racist? From my point of view right now, those aren't the key questions. But the point is, globalization has made a lot of individuals feel less in control. In the United States, there's a well-known fact. I don't remember the exact year, but it's not so far from now when the median American will be, again, definitions here differ, quote-unquote, non-white. Again, whatever you think of this, a lot of people don't like it. They may not know that number, but they sense there's something happening where, like, their people, their values are no longer in control. I'd say the control premium is one of the underrated ideas in economics still. People love to feel in control. They'll pay a lot of money, even waste a lot of money for that feeling. Right now, people do not feel in control. Uh, <clears throat> let me just mention a story that I think is considerably overrated, because I know you hear so much about it. So it's not that high on my list. It is on the list. I think it's one of them, but it's not in my top five, maybe not even my, my top seven. But that's the inequality story, which media are obsessed with. I don't think that's the main thing bothering most people, and certainly not most Americans. Just two or three reasons why. First, I think the inequalities which, which actually bug people are quite local. So it's the people you went to high school with, and you look on Facebook, and what are they doing? That can really bother you. Your colleague down the hall, did he or she get a bigger raise than I did? So I do think people really care about inequality, but not across such vast distances as, say, you know, very poor people looking at Bill Gates and you know being very upset that Bill has more money than they do. I don't think that's the main story here. So inequality is local. To me, the inequality story is that these local differences, you know, your wife's sister's husband, how's he doing right now? Uh, they're somehow more salient, maybe because of social media. So I think also if you look at the political science literature, you look at regressions, cross-country, increases in inequality actually predict disengagement, not rebellion, not Thermidor. If anything, what predicts in the statistical sense, the correlative sense, uh, rebellions in democracies is economic growth, rising expectations. So the idea, oh, inequality's up, everyone's all pissed off, therefore they're going to take to the streets, well, America, Britain, wherever, you know, have the next Thermidor. For me, that, that's very far from my thinking on this issue. I don't think the numbers or human nature really bear it out. I think in a few countries it's a factor. Uh, South Korea, Singapore, in my opinion, partly because they're much smaller and the capital city matters more. In Singapore, it's all you've got is the capital city. Uh, local and global inequalities, they're much closer together. But anyway, inequality story, I'll downgrade. Another story, I call it the males story. There's something wrong with a lot of men. And I hypothesize some percentage of men, a clear minority, I don't know how many, but they grow up and they want to make trouble and they want to be rowdy and essentially they want to kill and be violent. And this varies a lot by culture. 
U.S. has this problem more than Denmark does, and yes, that means we've done some things wrong, but it's still the case. And I think our world, almost completely for the better, has become much more feminized and tamer and more peaceful, and that's great. I'm an advocate of, you know, people being wimps, in a sense. But I think this group of men, manufacturing jobs, largely gone, there isn't a draft anymore, there are drones, they don't know what to do with themselves, and America as a country, some other places too, you know, northern England, not very good at managing them. So they turn to trouble in some way, uh, make trouble. So that's going on too. So all these stories, I would say, are operating. It's a kind of perfect storm, productivity story, globalization story, the males story. Another story, I'll call it the Manker Olson story. It's a kind of political stagnation. There's an accumulation of interest groups. It's sometimes called gridlock. I don't think that's exactly the right word. I mean, U.S. has changed some policies. We had big bailouts. We had Obamacare. I wouldn't exactly call it gridlock, but I would just say more and more of the federal budget is spoken for. There's less and less to toss around in debate. So if you look at political rhetoric, there's a great new paper by Jesse Shapiro and Matt Genskow. Starting in the early to mid-90s, political rhetoric becomes way more heated and partisan. Like before the early 90s, if a politician gave a speech in Congress and you would statistically analyze the words in that speech, get this, most of the time you could not tell if it were a Republican or Democratic congressperson. Shocking from today's point of view. But that changes now today almost all the time you can tell. Do they call it the estate tax or the death tax, right? Come on, you know who it is. Word analysis tells you most of the time. So it's precisely when there are fewer real decisions to be made and the money that is spent is spent more kind of guaranteeing safety to more people, more different groups, locking everything in, more of a NIMBY mentality, less obsession with going to the moon. Can you believe it? We did that basically in seven years with far inferior technology, with computers way worse you know, than my iPhone, starting more or less from scratch. We put men on the moon in seven years, and now we can't even repair the Tappanzi Bridge. We can't even start repairing it, like in 20 years. And then repairing it takes more time. Sometimes we cannot even rename a bridge in seven years today, because there are so many veto points. So that, too, is another factor. You could call it the NIMBY factor, the Manker Olson story, political stagnation. I'd say a bit mischaracterized as gridlock, but all different ways of talking about the same elephant. That's part of our perfect storm. <clears throat> now we're going to get to, uh, well, before I get to the two scariest parts, let me just give you yet another way of thinking about some of what maybe is happening in America and other economically advanced nations. A lot of the productivity growth we've had, of course, has been things like the iPhone, internet, communications. Like, no one thinks there's a great stagnation when it comes to tech, right? No one. Huge advances. Fantastic. That's great. It's the other sectors that are the problem. But it's as if information space has raced ahead of our ability to do things in physical space. And that has a lot of big advantages. It helps a lot of people, people who are journalists, political commentators, live in D.C., go to talks like this, watch them on YouTube. It's like, wow, phenomenal. But I think in a way what's happening is we have gone too far in that direction and the importance of what is sometimes called meat space, the so-called real world, physical space, actual geography, it's, it's reasserting itself in a bad way because there's a kind of imbalance in the economy. IT has raced ahead so quickly 
and you look at communications, you can say or post whatever you want anonymously. You can say quite nasty things. You can harass people. You can put out there polarizing ideas, which may or may not have your name attached to them. And discourse becomes in some ways nastier, but in physical space, things are more or less the same. Like the cyberspace version of this conference, totally different from 20 years ago, the physical space version, you're all sitting in chairs, not really different from the chairs I grew up with as a kid. And uh, you have pen and paper in hand. Nothing wrong with that. But again, there's a kind of imbalance. And I think when you have sharply imbalanced growth, it's actually another part of this perfect storm where our information technology seems to favor a kind of polarization or nastiness, maybe only for 5% of the people, 2% of the people, but that 5 2%, whatever it is, can make a lot of trouble. And when combined with the other parts of this perfect storm are probably another part of the story. <clears throat> okay, so now the, the two most worrying angles to all of this, and these are more the international arena. Uh, the first is what I will call the mean reverting peace story. Let me explain this a bit. There's a very famous book by Steven Pinker saying the world is getting more peaceful all the time. It's a beautifully written book. It's a brilliant book. It's a persuasive book. In my opinion, it's probably also a wrong book. But it's a very well done book. And he has a lot of argument, a lot of data that people dying in violent ways over time is declining. And those numbers are real. I mean, he, he has a lot of persuasive points. But all of the numbers he has, there's another way to read them. And that is to say, well, look at the 20th century. We have these two big outliers, World War I and World War II. Since then, a lot more peace. But it could just be technologies are more destructive. So that does make conflict more rare. But when conflict comes, it's worse each time. So OK, 19th century, at least for Europe, a lot of that was fairly good, reasonably peaceful post-1815. And then peace builds up. And then you get World War I, which is awful. And then you get World War II, which is more awful yet. And those are so awful, people are scared off, just like not everyone wants to buy equities after the financial crisis. So we're in this lull, and we don't know what the right model is. Is the right model the Steven Pinker model? Oh, we're all so wealthy and healthy. You know, we're all such wimps. Society is so feminized, nothing bad's really going to happen again. Or is the correct model you have these lulls, and in the lulls, more pressure for violence internationally builds up. Well, what's striking is that over the last six years, indices of violent conflict in the world have been rising. You see this most clearly, Syria, Libya, parts of the Middle East. That accounts for a lot of it. And six years of data doesn't prove that things are getting worse, but you have to start worrying when, the last six years, the indices are going against us. And if you study a variety of conflicts, a clear example, I think, is the former Yugoslavia. Once things there started turning bad, there was an internal logic or dynamic where they got worse. Hatreds that people thought had vanished forever came back anew, or maybe they were actually new hatreds with just old tags pinned on them for marketing purposes. So these negative dynamics, they have a kind of force of their own. So one plausible way of, what, of looking at what's happened to our world, we had a long period of relative peace, growing peacefulness. And then things are so peaceful, you just get a small number of rotten apples. One of them, his name starts with a P. Maybe you know who I mean, right? Putin. Uh, 
And they think, well, things are so peaceful, I can grab and no one will stop me. And that's what we've seen. Again, it may be a blip, it may be noise, we might go back to the Steven Pinker trend. But I think there's an alternative scenario where just a small number of rotten apples make some grabs, they end up essentially unopposed, and then that peaceful order breaks down the way it did before World War I, World War II. And there's at least some chance, I'd say below 50%, but like not trivial, there's a chance we're in another one of those cycles. Small number of bad players making grabs. People in the freer countries so wealthy and healthy, I don't want to say they don't give a damn, but it just doesn't feel that urgent. And so when you have, say, some of the key people in Mr. Trump's campaign being apparently agents for Mr. Putin, uh, this is actually not that big a media story. And there's some outrage amongst various intellectuals, but it's barely a story at all. Uh, people, some, you know, when I do some of my podcasts as part of the sequence, it's called Underrated, Overrated. And I ask the people I interview, like, who's underrated, who's overrated? I have a candidate for underrated. This may shock some of you. But I think underrated today is Joe McCarthy. Now, I know McCarthy did a lot of terrible things, unfair, wrecked people's careers, uh, was against principles of free speech. Like, oh, the bad things said about McCarthy, those are true. I'm not defending any of that. But McCarthy did bring attention to the fact that the notion of foreign agents inside the U.S. government doing evil things is real. He stressed that, and he was right, and we've forgotten it. So I actually think uh, at some point it will be recognized that fear was underrated. It's going to come back. It's probably here already. And the governments, you know, that have the resources to do that are mostly China and Russia. So anyway, we could be in the middle of this mean reverting peace story. You have peace for long enough. You start to edge back to violent conflict. We don't know. I'm not predicting that. I'm just saying it really worries me. Second factor, you look at just the world. Just to ask a simple question, say America, like global hegemon of some sort, right? Uh, what percent of global GDP is the United States? Is that going up or is it going down? It's going down, right? No one disputes that. What percent of global GDP is what you would call non-free nations? Again, I know it's a little tricky. How free is free? Who counts? Uh, but I'd say that's going up by my measures. There, I recognize some ambiguity in doing the count, but still. Uh, I'll say it's going up, sort of population presence on the global stage. So just you look at, you know, GDP influence, good guys getting smaller, people, I'm not saying they're bad people in those countries, but their governments are more likely to be uh, non-free influences on the global stage. That's going up. Just a simple theory that when the less free countries have more resources, the whole world becomes less free. It's not to me, a terrible theory. I mean, I think you see this in a lot of Latin America. When the Soviet Union went away, so much of Latin America got better pretty quickly because it turned out without the Soviet Union there, I mean, even academia got better. Can you believe that? For a while, not, not anymore, of course, but uh, Marxism kind of went away for a while. Uh, a lot of those civil wars in Latin America really eased up or disappeared. And I think just the actual presence out there of a lot of resources controlled by non-free, non-democratic governments working a kind of indirect influence on the whole world, I think we underrate that channel. And right now, that is not really a channel working for us. 
So, you know, a fear is like, what's the ultimate bubble? Well, at first it was subprime, right? And then it turned out to be the mortgage market more generally. And then it turned out to be equities too. And then it turned out to be the American economy. And then it turned out to be almost everywhere in the West and, and so on and so on. But my greatest fear is that the ultimate bubble is some kind of working system with the global hegemon. And that is at least dwindling and it may be disappearing. So when you turn on the Republican convention and see various claims tossed out, like, oh, we're not going to defend the Baltics. I mean, you might even agree with that position. I'm not trying to argue the substance here, but just to casually announce, A, I'm a great bargainer, and B, our ally to whom we have a written treaty guarantee, we're going to let, you know, hang loose as a starting point for negotiations. Getting back to my opening point, there's something insane going on there. So, uh, I mean, that's my view of the perfect storm. All of these factors, the last two are foreign. The mean reverting peace story and relative proportion of GDP in non-free nations. Those are global, very worrisome. And then at home, there's like the Manker Olson political gridlock story. There's the males can make trouble story, the globalization story, productivity story. Some are all small, much smaller for the inequality story. And then on top of that, I just fear the notion of contagion. So when you see similar types of events happen in a lot of different countries, well, they might have a similar cause. To some extent, that's true. But it might just be pure contagion. So there's a literature in financial economics that looks at equity prices. And this is pretty well established. This is not controversial. But when prices fall, there's much more cross-border contagion than when they rise. That suggests to me some element of this is just psychology. It's easier to panic people than it is to get them elated. Uh, so maybe that's just another part of this perfect storm hitting the world today. Some bad things in different countries, people in other countries get spooked by them. I mean, look at Australia. They're growing at more than 3%. Their unemployment's a tiny bit over 5%. And they have a kind of right-wing populist movement that's really pretty strong. And the ability to stand up and say, hey, this is Australia. The sun shines every day. Our economy's still pretty great. It doesn't seem to matter that much. And that, I suspect, has to do with the psychological contagion. So on one side of the, you know, the struggle, there's all these forces, the perfect storm. On the other side for the world is the growing health and wealth and general progress. I so, so, so dearly hope those forces of general progress are stronger. But these days, I actually really don't know. My time is up. I know there's no time for questions, but I do have an email address. Google my name, email, you'll get to it, it's on my blog. So if you do want to ask me a question or contact me in any way, please just use information space and drop me a line. Thank you all. We are to introduce ourselves. Um, my name is Jeffrey Winters. I'm a professor of politics at Northwestern University, and I direct something called the Equality, Development, and Globalization Studies Program um, there. Um, I want to begin by saying that I think it's mistaken to think that rising inequality doesn't matter. You have to not be listening to the campaigns and to the voters um, and to the crowds just over the last year in the United States to reach that conclusion. 
the anger people uh, feel is real. Um, and when people feel dislocated, they look for who or what is to blame. And leaders help frame that blame. And they are not blaming neighbors or their sister's husband. Um, so we need to pay very close attention to the way that inequality and the perception of inequality and its reality are playing out, not just in American politics, but more globally. In the 2011 piece I wrote for the American interest, I argued that rather than ask whether the United States was an oligarchy or a democracy, which is the typical way the issue is discussed, um, that we should recognize that it is both. Democracy refers to the dispersion of political power via free participation. Universal suffrage and the principle of one person, one vote are rooted in notions of equality among citizens. Oligarchy refers to a very different kind of political influence based on extreme wealth concentrated in the hands of a few and the use of that wealth as a power resource to shape the political process. This power resource is obviously distributed very unevenly in society. In my book entitled Oligarchy and in my article for the American Interest, I demonstrated that one of the main objectives of oligarchic power is wealth defense. As we observe many social and political tensions and a deep sense of restlessness in the United States today, it is important to think about the interplay between oligarchy and democracy in the United States. Toward the end of my remarks this afternoon, I will come back to these tensions. But at this point, let me just emphasize that this combination of democracy and oligarchy, of participation power and wealth power, represents an uneasy blend of great equality and great inequality. Some of my more recent work focuses on the problems inherent in trying to blend equality in one sphere with extreme inequalities in other spheres. The reality is that we don't just live in democracies, we live everywhere in stratified democracies. And wealth is clearly not the only basis of stratification that exists. Democracies have been marred by racial, ethnic, gendered, and geographic exclusions and dominations as well. As we well know from history, every democracy was born into societies that manifested all kinds of inequalities of power, privilege, access, wealth, and opportunity. The promise of democracy was that through freedom and participation, our worst inequalities would be addressed and overcome. Not only has this process been slow and uneven, but in the case of wealth stratification, nearly all democratic societies, the United States included, has become dramatically more unequal. Something is very wrong with a political system that embodies values of equality, justice, fairness, inclusion, and human dignity, and yet it tends to absorb and reflect our many stratifications and social pathologies rather than overcome them, and in some cases allows them to grow worse. I say this not as a rejection or an indictment of democracy, but rather to provoke us to confront the ways in which its promises are going unfulfilled.
Failing to address these shortcomings and contradictions is a dangerous path for any nation, the United States included. I referred a moment ago to a restlessness in our democracy, and I would suggest that it is a, rest a restlessness that is reverberating in many parts of the world. If you step back a moment and look at a fairly broad sweep of history, and by that I mean several centuries, it is undeniable, on the one hand, that there is a long arc toward freedom. More people have rights, can participate, can speak out, and can vote. Democracy began in just a few countries, and even within those, large portions of their societies were excluded, sometimes as slaves or on the basis of gender and so on. Change hasn't always been fast enough or deep enough, but the trend is clear that democracy and freedom are definitely spreading. If we just take Freedom House's tally of countries that are free versus not free, the percentage of not free countries in the world has dropped from 45% in the 1970s to just 25% today. And yet, as I will mention in much greater detail in a moment, over that same arc of history, wealth has become dramatically more concentrated in few hands. This is actually profoundly puzzling. And it provokes a question. Why hasn't power to the people resulted in policies that spread more benefits to people as well? Or to put the question slightly differently, why has democracy failed to deconcentrate wealth as a matter of democratic policy or outcome? What we get instead is more wealth inequality despite more freedom and democracy. It makes sense to us that under a dictatorship, wealth should become dramatically more concentrated as the powerful grab everything for themselves and leave the crumbs for everyone else. Why doesn't freedom help us spread wealth? Not necessarily to some sort of absolute equality, but at least an improvement. And how do we make sense of things getting actually worse? To take just the United States, Wealth is vastly more concentrated in a few hands today than at the nation's founding. Of course, it must be noted that part of the population was a form of capital and wealth owned by another part of the population at that time. But wealth concentration globally or in the US has actually never been remotely close in, in history to what it is now. So how bad is it? Well, just six years ago, the richest 388 people on the planet had as much wealth as the bottom half of the entire world's population combined. Today, just 62 people have as much wealth as the bottom 3.7 billion people on Earth. This tells us not only that wealth is concentrated, but that it is actually accelerating rapidly. Well, you might say there's a lot of dirt poor people living in villages around the world with almost nothing to their name. So you count up a lot of incredibly impoverished people and it doesn't amount to a whole lot. That's true. But let's turn to the United States, which doesn't have a lot of dirt poor villages. It takes just 20 wealthy Americans to equal the total wealth of the bottom half of the United States population, which is 152 million people. At the global level, the top 1% now owns half of all net wealth. 
In the U.S., the figure is only slightly better. The top 1% owns 40% of all net wealth. It should be noted also that both in the U.S. and around the globe, the bottom 15% of the population actually has negative wealth. Of course, negative wealth means that their total debts are greater than their total assets. Now, I know I'm throwing out a bunch of statistics, but bear with me because these figures are incredibly important, actually, I believe, for understanding at least part of the politics we are seeing today. I'm painting a picture of growing political equality on one side of the ledger, combined with growing inequality, in this case of wealth, on the other. When we think about wealth stratification, we often think about the gap between the 1% and the 99%. But this actually misses the picture of how stratified and concentrated wealth actually is in the world and in the United States today. Let me illustrate. Um, if the bottom 99% was represented by a pyramid that was just one foot tall, bottom 99%, it would take a spire on top of that one foot pyramid that is 90 feet tall to capture just the stratification within the top 1%. That is um, the greatest and most Binding, uh, that is to say, that the greatest and most mind-boggling stratification actually exists within the top 1% itself. Let me offer you one more comparison to put some of this in historical perspective so that we can really assess where we are in the history of human civilization. And I'm going to compare the United States to Imperial Rome. Okay? If you take the median wealth of the 500 richest imperial Roman senators, and you compare it to the average person in imperial Rome who happened to be either a slave or a landless peasant, the ratio of wealth between those two median representatives was 10,000 to 1. Fast forward to the United States today. If you take the median wealth of the 500 richest Americans and you compare it to the median wealth of the person in the United States, it is 58,000 to 1. And if you count only liquid financial assets, it's actually 100,000 to 1. So wealth in the democratic United States today is between 6 and 10 times more unequally distributed than in imperial Rome, an authoritarian system based on slavery. Well, if the story ended there, we might just say, oh, how lucky for those at the top and just be done with it. But it doesn't end there. Recall that concentrated wealth is a power resource and tremendous inequality there introduces tremendous inequality into democracy itself. Wealth power doesn't equal political power by a simple one-to-one -one formula. There are other variables that matter. Two in particular stand out. The first is the form that wealth takes. Wealth in the form of land or cattle or mines is hard to use politically because it's not very liquid. And throughout history, a lot of wealth was held in that form, not very liquid uh, form. So some forms of wealth are more easily converted into, into political influence um, than others. But the most 
potent form of wealth is liquid financial assets, especially cash money. And I'll come back to this in a moment. The second variable is what might be called the permeability of the political system to the use of wealth power. So how easy do we make it to use wealth to influence politics? It is obvious that wealth can never be fully stripped of its power component. But we can, as a society, make it a lot harder or easier to deploy money for political purposes. The most obvious recent example that everyone is aware of is the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision, which opened the floodgates for oligarchs in the United States with wealth power to use their influence. And the American public has noticed, and they're not very happy about it. Now here I want to revisit the question of wealth concentration because now that I've focused it in on the question of liquid financial assets, whereas a moment ago I was talking about overall wealth concentration in all of its forms. But if we focus on financial liquid wealth, it turns out that it happens to be the most potent form for political purposes, and it happens to be the most unevenly distributed form of wealth mentioned. I'm going to present some global data, but the US actually follows um, a similar pattern. So a moment ago, I made this comparison between Rome and the United States, and I said it was 58,000 to one in the United States if you included all property, but it became 100,000 to one if you only used liquid financial resources. And that's because a huge component for the average citizen in their wealth component is their home. Okay. Um, but as you get richer, financial assets loom much larger in scale and, of course, compared to the value of one's home or homes. Um, the political salience of this is that while our society might decide um, uh, to use their wealth to shape the country, uh, while some in our society might decide to use their wealth to shape the country's agenda and elevate candidates to office, very few of us can use the network net worth of our homes to have a political influence. Lots of people take out home equity loans for all sorts of things, but rarely do they do it to make campaign contributions, for example. And so the concentration of financial wealth is the best indicator of how wealth power, that is oligarchic power, is distributed around the world and in the US. So what do we know? These numbers are inexact because nearly all governments around the world track income, not wealth. And that's, by the way, not an accident. Um, and a lot of wealth is hidden in offshore secrecy jurisdictions. But in 2012, the world had roughly $55 trillion in total liquid financial assets. And there were about 7 billion people at that time. The top 1% owns more than 90% of all liquid financial assets globally. The bottom 99% owns less than 10%. Um, now notice, this is a far more skewed number um, than the overall wealth concentration. So recall that for the world, 1% owned 50%, and now in liquid financial assets, 1% owns over 90%. Financial firepower is almost twice as concentrated as the already extreme wealth distribution. So not only uh, do oligarchs use their wealth power to influence politics directly, but they also fund 
an extensive multi-billion dollar wealth defense industry made up of armies of professional accountants, lawyers, lobbyists, and other wealth management specialists whose sole job is to move money around the world, create shell corporations, hide ownership of assets, design tax shelters and tax instruments, and provide other services all to avoid paying taxes to the government. This shifts burdens downward to others in society who are less able to pay and less able to avoid paying. It fuels resentment of government because everyone knows this is going on. And it fuels inequality in society because redistribution is thwarted, which is the purpose of the wealth defense industry in the first place. Now, I'm going to close my remarks by trying to link some of this to the politics of what's going on today. I mentioned earlier that we are in a moment of considerable tension and restlessness in American politics. Much of the anger we are witnessing is linked to the failed promises of democracy. And instead of more equality in the political realm, producing more equality in other dimensions of society, we are seeing either stagnation or regression. Democracies like the United States arise, as we said before, in contexts of tremendous inequalities, but they are supposed to move us forward. That's an expectation. On racial grounds, this has not been happening. The best we can say is that race continues, race exclusion continues. Some would say things have gotten worse rather than better. But the picture on wealth stratification is actually much clearer. There has been regression and deterioration. The distribution of wealth has become more unequal, more extreme, and more concentrated. And this has spilled over into unequal political power and distortion that has made people angry. There is much that divides the Trump base and the Sanders base. But where they overlap is in their anger toward the status quo, the bleak jobs prospects, the role they feel that major corporations, financial institutions, and trade deals have had on their lives. And both bases believe their parties are thoroughly bought and paid for and are thus unrepresentative. The way in which their bases differ, Trump and Sanders, is that whereas the Sanders supporters view these problems mainly through a lens of domination and corruption roughly emanating from Wall Street, the Trump base has a very ugly race element mixed into it. This is because in addition to the wealth concentration problem just mentioned, the US is also going through a demographic transformation that no European or European offshoot country has ever experienced. The country is on the verge of becoming, as Tyler mentioned before, minority white. Last September, September 2015, for the first time in the country's history, the entering kindergarten class across the United States was 49% Caucasian and 51% other races. In 20 years, the country itself will be 49% Caucasian, um, and race tensions run, as we well know, through American history. And the Trump campaign is tapping into this new anxiety in his base, which, truth be told, has always seen the country as white plus. As they face growing economic pressures, they are interpreting 
these pressures increasingly through a racialized lens, and he is helping them do that. This explains all the coded language, the blame and anger toward immigrants, a desire to build a wall, to deport millions of people, and in effect, to buy time on the demographic clock. So let me finish by noting that in an era that will test the promise of democracy to deliver not just formal political equality, but greater rather than less equality in other aspects of our society as well. Um, this is the challenge of the time, and we ignore these challenges at our own peril. Thank you. Hi there, my name is Nils Gilman. I'm a historian. I work at UC Berkeley. Um, and I'm going to start right from the same place where Jeffrey uh, uh, ended. Um, and maybe I can begin by asking, why are we ob observing and maybe revisiting this question of plutocracy, which the American interest raised five years ago today? I think the obvious answer uh, has to do with the 2008-2009 financial collapse um, uh, here in the United States and worldwide. Two things have been critical about that financial collapse. First is that it's been a catastrophe for a very specific segment of the population. Not for everybody. Uh, for highly educated people, uh, you know, maybe your wealth went down a little bit. Your 401k maybe dropped. You know, the size of your Fidelity account dropped. But basically, mostly you held on to your job, and things have continued uh, to be pretty OK in terms of the growth prospects and your employability inside the economy. However, for the less educated, less mobile, and less flexible portion of the population, it's been an utter catastrophe. Um, the level of social destruction that's taken place uh, throughout the United States, and I should say also in other parts of the industrial core, is really hard to overstate. Whole communities, uh, particularly in small towns and rural areas of the Midwest, are experiencing wholesale economic and social collapse as documented, for example, in Sam Kinonidis' uh, brilliant book, which I recommend to everybody, um, Dreamland. For traditional uh, uh, working classes, as they used to be known, jobs are gone, and the wellsprings of traditional forms of social esteem um, uh, have been uh, replaced with a blighted landscape of deindustrialization, drug abuse, and disdain on the part of elites. Now, of course, African Americans have been experiencing this kind of thing for 50 years, or arguably for hundreds of years. But this is something that is new for the lower middle class, uh, lower class and lower middle class white population. And this time, they don't even have uh, the consolation prize of a officially elite sanctioned ethno-racial supremacism. The second thing that's really important about the 2008-2009 financial collapse is that nobody was held accountable. Well. Individual homeowners who borrowed more than they could afford were held accountable. But virtually none of the financial or political elites who engineered the system that collapsed in 2008 have been held to systematic account. This lack of accountability represents a moral crisis for the country that's now manifesting itself as a crisis of political legitimacy for elites of all sorts, especially for the political elites who have overseen the development of this system over the last 40 years or so. And I'll get back to that 40 years or so in a moment. As Frank Fukuyama wrote five years ago uh, in this uh, issue of the American Interest, quote, the collapse undermined the fundamental moral justification for material inequality in a politically egalitarian society. 
Basic to the legitimacy of market capitalism is the efficient market hypothesis. That is, the notion that in a truly competitive market, everyone earns something close to his or her social rate of return. Now, to be fair, this problem with the official, uh, efficient market hypothesis is not exactly new. Uh, it was 30 years ago that Larry Summers uh, provided uh, his famously parsimonious refutation of the efficient market hypothesis. He said, there are idiots, look around. Never mind the irony that despite uh, rejecting the efficient market hypothesis, Summers is as responsible as anybody else um, for the entrenching of the United States' current system of financialized capitalism. Nonetheless, as Fukuyama continued, the crisis made it glaringly obvious that the efficient market hypothesis was wrong. Oversized returns were flowing to innovative financial entrepreneurs who, in their avidity to create new and more complex financial instruments and products, were destroying rather than creating value for society as a whole. The crisis also shed light on the fact that corporate America was doing very well for its officers and shareholders, many of whom were not American citizens, but much less well for Americans awaiting the trickle of jobs um, as, as, as the, uh, the trickle of jobs as they were outsourced and automated by the millions. So perhaps corporate America's social rate of return um, approximated the expectations of the efficient market hypothesis, but only if, the, uh, only if the social no longer was in reference to the United States' society alone. So this was the general context in which two years ago I published my article uh, about Leviathan mugged. Um, and what I, the argument I made in that piece was, uh, was uh, quite simple, actually. I argued that um, the uh, global political economy, and the United States in particular, faces what I called a twin insurgency, one from below and the other from above. Um, on the one hand, from below, there's an interconnected set of criminal insurgencies in which the global disenfranchised resist, co-opt, root around states as they seek ways to empower and enrich themselves in the shadows of the global economy. Drug cartels, human traffickers, computer hackers, counterfeiters, arms dealers, and others exploit the failures of governance um, systems to build global commercial empires for themselves that in turn provide them with the resources to corrupt, co-opt, and challenge incumbent political actors. So that's the criminal insurgency from below. On the other hand, from above, there exists what I call a plutocratic insurgency, in which globalized elites seek to disengage from traditional national obligations and responsibilities. These people include the wealth-protecting classes that Jeffrey was referring to earlier, libertarian activists, tax haven lawyers, currency speculators, mineral extraction magnates, um, the, the new global super-rich, um, the super-class, as, uh, as they've been called, and their hired help, who are waging a broad-based campaign um, that aims either to limit the reach or the capacity of government tax collectors and regulators or to manipulate these functions as a tool in their own cutthroat, cutthroat business competition. Now, obviously, there was a bit of a provocation here in referring to these, uh, first of all, in po posing a kind of equivalency, although I'll try to defend that in a moment, between the plutocratic insurgency and the criminal insurgency. Um, but also, uh, there's a provocation in calling these people insurgents. What do I mean by uh, insurgents? Well, the first thing I want to say is these are not traditional kinds of what we would think of as stereotypical 20th century revolutionary actors. The stereotypical 20th century revolutionary actor, someone I'm thinking of like Lenin or like Mao or like the Ayatollah Khomeini, are people who seek to capture the state because they have a social project that they wish to enact. 
Those social projects have varied, obviously, from one, uh, from one revolutionary actor to another. But generally speaking, that was the model, and that was the number one thing that U.S. foreign policy in many ways during the course of the 20th century was geared at stopping. We wanted to stop the Nazis. We wanted to stop the communists. We wanted to stop ex extreme, extremist forms of, uh, of Islam from taking over states and enacting social projects that were anathema to the kinds of values that the United States believed in. That's not the kind of actors we're talking about here. They don't actually have a social project. They're not interested in capturing the state in order to institute a certain kind of social reform. Rather, what they're interested in doing is crippling the state. This is why it's about Leviathan being mugged. It's not about taking Leviathan and teaching Leviathan how to, be a, how to do something different. It's about trying to just limit the scope and range of Leviathan. I think these things uh, are at the heart of what we've seen in the populist revolts that have broken out on both sides of the Atlantic over the last year or so. And I think this is especially true uh, for the case of both Brexit and Trump, or at least the Trump phenomenon. What do I mean by that? If you think about what the thing is that has motivated people to vote for Brexit, or that's motivating people to support Trump, it's really a reaction to both ends of this twin insurgency. On the one hand, there's a reaction to the plutocratic uh, insurgents who are fundamentally seeking to undermine the state. This is why both in Britain and in the United States, the leaders of Brexit and Trump himself are interested in defending social, uh, social security and national health service and other kinds of social institutions. These are people who specifically identify the plutocrats as part of the problem that's undermining the basis of security for the white natives in these societies. These, both of these movements are also naming or at least pointing to the criminal insurgency, which they identify with illicit actors from abroad. In many cases, those are the actors who are bringing in the criminal insurgencies into their societies, bringing in drug dealing, bringing in human trafficking, bringing in people who are fundamentally changing the characters of the societies that they're part of. Now, I myself don't necessarily support the kinds of solutions that are being proposed through Brexit or with Trump, but it is true that these organizations uh, and that these movements are pointing out real problems that the mainstream politicians have mostly just tried to ignore or say were described as birthing pains or as transaction costs on our way to a globalized future that w w in which all boats would be raised. Many people have become extremely skeptical of that. If you look at the pattern of how wealth has been distributed, the, 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 the benefits of economic growth over the last generation have been distributed, it's extremely uneven. Basically, you have Two, you have a, a bimodal distribution. On the one hand, we know the story about the 1%. This has been made famous by Thomas Piketty's work. The 1% globally and in most nations have done extremely well over the last 40 years. Financialized capitalism and technology have provided ways for people to make, at the top of the, uh, at the, top of the economic food chain, money at a scale that's never been seen before in all the ways uh, that Jeffrey was describing earlier. The, the second part of the bimodal distribution is the bottom half of the global income distribution. Despite the fact that inequality is growing, there's been a great deal of poverty reduction globally all over the world. Now, a big part of this story, the majority of this story, is the China story. Most astounding thing that's happened in economic history, possibly in history full stop, is what's happened in China over the last 30 years. Almost 600 million people have moved out of, out of villages into cities and out of poverty into lower middle class types of existence. This is not to say there's not a lot of poor people left in China, but an enormous amount of poverty reduction has taken place in China. And not just in China, in many other parts of the world, in Latin America, in South Asia, there's been a great deal of growth in what we would call the uh, five to 55 uh, percentile range of global population 
of the, of the global income range. There's been a great deal of growth. The place that has really suffered, and in some cases there's been negative growth, even over a 30-year period, has been in the part of the, of the global uh, income spectrum, which is about in the 70s and 80s percentile. In other words, the working classes of the industrial north. All right? These people have seen a relative decline, and in some cases an absolute decline, in their level of wealth and in their level of income. And at the same time, they've seen a great deal of increase all over the, all over the, uh, in the, uh, at the upper echelon and in the, uh, in the lower echelon. So relatively speaking, there's been a massive amount of declassing for people in that particular job segment. And they don't have the kinds of flexibility and mobility options that people at the, bottom, at the top of the food chain have. That, I think, explains a great deal uh, of the anger that you've seen. And it's what, a major thing that precipitated the Brexit vote, and it's a major thing that's driving the support for Trump today. So let me step back and be a historian for a moment about this. How did we end up in this situation? I would argue that the economic system, the political, the global political economic system that we have today was really born in the 1970s, came to maturity in the 90s, and is now in its senescence. Uh, there's a, uh, uh, a somewhat obscure... Uh, Russian economist, Nikolai Kondratiev, uh, who uh, almost a century ago uh, described the way in which there's been this recurring set of patterns in global capitalism over the last 250 years, where new kinds of technology platforms come online um, and provide a basis for all kinds of ancillary growth over time. So, uh, for example, um, in the first Kondratiev cycle, which lasted from about 1800 to about 1850, it was steam engines, it was cotton, and it was those kinds of productive systems that provided a huge amount of growth, uh, particularly in the core of, of, uh, of northeastern United States and in Britain, Midlands, and increase, and then in, uh, in Britain, in the British Midlands. However, in the 1840s, there was a major crisis of the, of the, of the, uh, of the global economy. Uh, this is one of the things this led to was the Irish, Irish famine, because the Brits kept exporting uh, kept exporting grain from Ireland, even as uh, even as the potato blight uh, uh, caused, was causing millions of people to die. Um, in the United States in the 1840s, there was also a financial several rounds of financial crisis. But eventually, at that very moment, when it seemed as if there might be uh, a, a serious uh, decline in the power of um, uh, the, the power of the steam engine to continue to generate economic growth, a second new wave of growth began really through the invention of steel and railways. And again, you had the same kind of cycle. Throughout the late 19th century, there was a major growth until about the 1870s. And then between the 1870s and 1890s, there was a period of secular stagnation that caused a lot of disruptions here and led to the, the uh, rise of the Populist Party in the United States and other similar things. At that very moment, when it seemed as if capitalism might be stalling, socialism was becoming very popular. Of course, this was exactly the moment of, uh, of uh, where Marx is beginning to uh, become a popular figure in Europe as well. Another wave begins. This time, it's the electrical um, chemistry, the electrical engineering and chemistry and chemical uh, industries that provide a new wave of growth. And similarly, again, there's a 35-year period of growth that then begins to tail off in the uh, in the teens. Um, and then is replaced by the automobile and petrochemical industry, which has a long period of growth until about the 1970s, the era of stagflation, just when it seemed as if capitalism might not be working any longer, and now we're getting up to the period where our own time period, where our own political economy is born, a whole series of transformations take place in the 1970s. 
At the level of governance of the global economy, we move to floating exchange rates away from the Bretton Woods system. We start moving towards a much freer trade, much greater trade liberalization that had begun earlier with GATT, but really accelerates during the 1970s. And most importantly, we start to get a new kind of platform for growth, namely information technologies. And for the last 40 years, we've ridden the wave of growth related to information technologies. What I would argue is that we're reaching, or perhaps we have reached, the age of senescence for the growth available from information technologies. And if you think about this, what are the major things, the major breakthroughs we're seeing with information technology nowadays? Pokemon Go. This is not improving the productivity of the economy in any kind of a broad sense, right? Um, we seem to have run out of things that are really going to increase. The first wave of information technology, the computerization, led to global supply chains, much more efficient inventory management, and so on. That's all been done. All the low-hanging fruit associated with the platform of information technology has been picked. And that's one of the reasons why we're having the kind of productivity crisis that Tyler was describing earlier, is we've run out of real productivity growth. That's not to say there aren't companies that are going to spring up and create new consumer products and individual companies in Silicon Valley that are going to do very well, but they, this is no longer a amplified productivity platform that can spread wealth into, uh, into remote corners of the, uh, of the economy. So the question I think we have to ask is, are we going to see another Kondratiev wave emerge that can potentially pull us out of the secular stagnation that we've seen ourselves in and create new kinds of platforms for growth? I think there's some candidates out there for technology platforms that could serve that purpose. Biotechnology could be in that category. Uh, robotics could be in that category. Uh, artificial intelligence could be in that category. As with all kinds of technological innovations, it's very hard to be predictive about these things. We don't really know. Maybe these five Kondratiev waves that we've seen are the only five we're ever going to have. Maybe there won't be any more productivity gains from major technological breakthroughs. We actually just don't know. I'm optimistic that we may see such a thing. But the other thing that's happened at every turn in the Kondratiev waves is there's been an absolute kind of morphing event in the structure of the governing institutions in the economies that were really able to most effectively take advantage of the new technologies that came along. And what I'm concerned about is this other point that Tyler was making when he was referring to the, as the Mancourt-Olson problem, which is that we've reached a kind of sclerosis in our political institutions to the point where we can't even reform the institutions themselves. And if we're really going to be able to take maximum advantage of the technology platforms that could emerge in the next 10 or 20 years to reignite productivity growth in the global economy, we're going to have to figure out ways to reform our institutions to, so that they can flexibly take advantage of these things. Currently, there's too many blocking factions, too many veto points in, the, uh, in, in our governing institutions to really make this effective. And the question is, how are we going to overcome that? I don't think Trump is the answer, and I'm not sure Hillary is either. But I also think that this is the last cycle in which we're going to see this particular formation of political act actors, and that we're very likely to see a very different kind of uh, axis of uh, political debate emerge. And this is where Trump does point forward, perhaps. There will be those who want to reform our institutions in ways that will allow us to take advantage of incipient new technology platforms, and there will be those who just want to defend the status quo and try to hang on to legacy privileges. And I believe that that political division, which doesn't necessarily map perfectly onto the divisions we're currently seeing today, will be the salient one, and the question of which of one of those factions wins will determine whether the United States can continue to play a leading role in the world. Thank you. Rick, what are you okay. waiting for? Start. Oh, was that the introduction? Oh, okay. Sorry. No, I I'm not. I'm not going to introduce you. First of all, everybody knows who you are, 
And you can introduce yourself, or would you like me to introduce? I'll introduce you a little bit. Okay. All right. So, as I said at the in the beginning of the uh, first half of the program, then uh, the idea for this event goes back to a 2011 issue that we published, um, which is not on the screens, Frank, because you're on the screens now. Uh, Our plutocrats drowning the republic, and we heard first from from Tyler Cowan. Uh, as the first segment, then from Jeffrey Winters and then Nils Gilman, all drawing off their previous articles in uh, earlier issues. Um, and um, uh, you were quoted, Frank, by Nils Gilman at length in uh, his final brilliant segment, quoted from the article in the uh, 2011 issue that we're retroviewing. Um, now, uh, Frank, what else should I say about that? No, that's that's, that's about fine. Sure. That All right, I'm ready. I'm ready. You ready to roll? Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you uh, for that uh, introduction, and I'm very sorry not to be there in person. We teach a uh, program, a summer fellows program here at Stanford for uh, democracy activists uh, around the world, and we're kind of in the middle of that, which is why I could not get to uh, Washington. And I'm sorry I missed the earlier. Uh, presentations. Also, I cannot see any of you, even though presumably you can see me. So when you when you giggle and snigger and roll your eyes, uh, I'm not going to be able to <laughs> catch that. Ah, okay. <laughs> Here we go. All right, very good. So I can see I can see a bit. Uh, so. Actually, this retrospective on that 2011 issue uh, was quite interesting because I had actually completely forgotten that I had written that article. And uh, so it was actually quite interesting to re-read it at uh, this five-year juncture. Uh, And so I would just summarize a little bit of what I was saying back uh, at that point, that first of all, You know, the first part was simply to establish the fact that we had a big problem with uh, inequality. I quoted this study of uh, Piketty and and Saez, which was published, uh, you know, before Piketty's big book on capital in 21st century, and then reciting what had now become fairly, uh, 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 you know, uh, well-quoted facts and figures (coughs) about growing uh, inequality. Uh, from my standpoint, the bigger problem that this posed uh, was not the economic dimension, but was the political problem of representation. Uh, you have the Madisonian view that you're going to have factions in uh, the United States and American democracy. Uh, Madison's idea was that these factions would, in a large and diverse country, uh, essentially cancel each other out. His major concern uh, was over uh, excessive uh, centralized government uh, authority, uh, basically tyranny. Uh, and the worry was really that one of the factions would grab the government and then use that power to tyrannize over the rest. Uh, the problem, uh, I think, uh, in the United States today is a little bit uh, different from that. Uh, we do have a crisis of representation. Uh the theory that collectively interest groups in American democracy somehow represent the democratic public, uh, I think, really doesn't hold up uh, in many ways because of the outside 
outsized influence that uh, money plays in American uh, politics. And so some groups are better represented than others. Some have much more influence over the political system, and indeed some individuals have much more um, much more influence than they should in a system that is based on one man, uh, one vote. Now, it is true that, you know, Madison's hope that these groups would cancel each other out to some extent uh, has been correct, that we uh, do not have a tyranny of over-centralized government in the United States. The problem uh, is, in my view, rather different, that the, the constitutional system established by the founding fathers this complex system of checks and balances that we have, uh, really to a much greater extent than most parliamentary democratic systems, privileges minorities. It allows uh, minorities to uh, block uh, action by majorities. Uh, this is done deliberately. Again, this is a this is a safeguard against excessively strong centralized government. But when you combine this with a degree of polarization. Uh, in American society and with these extremely well-resourced and well-organized interest groups, you get this phenomenon that I labeled uh, vitocracy, in which the problem in a way is the opposite of what Madison was concerned about. It's not overly centralized government. Uh, it's actually government that can't do anything. It can't make uh, basic decisions because it's too easy to veto uh, individual uh, individual things that, that hurt the interests of one of these particular groups. I would say prima facie evidence of this is Congress's inability over the last decade to pass a budget. I mean, they, they haven't passed a budget under so-called regular order uh, now for a number of years running, and in several of those years, you actually had to have, uh, you know, a major crisis threaten America's, uh, you know, uh, credibility as a uh, uh, you know, in terms of, of sovereign debt, uh, shut down the government uh, in one case, uh, simply to do what a, you know, a well-functioning political system ought to do, which is to pass, um, uh, pass a budget uh, regularly every year. And there are many other aspects of American policy where vitocracy op operates. You know, that's the reason we can't build infrastructure or undertake, you know, important decisions on immigration or guns or any number of other uh, topics. Now, the title of that 2011 article was left out, and the big question that I posed uh, in the article was, given the fact that you had this increasing degree of economic inequality, uh, this overrepresentation of the well-organized and the, you know, the well-to-do in the political system, why didn't you have more populism? Uh, at that point, uh, you had Occupy Wall Street, and you had the uh, origins of the Tea Party. Uh, but given you know, the magnitude of what had happened in the United States, the, the, the socioeconomic changes, you would have expected an upwelling of uh, populism, and particularly on the left, because the, you know, the crisis, the subprime crisis uh, in 2008-2009 really was the result of, uh, you know, of policies that, you know, the deregulatory uh, policies that had led to, you know, the accumulation of, uh, of debt uh, in, the, uh, in the banking system. Uh, and that, I thought, you know, in that article was a, uh, was a interesting conundrum. So uh, we fast forward to five years later. 
and ask what's changed. And so I would say there's basically five things that now in hindsight are different. Uh, the first is I think the fact of inequality is no longer challenged, uh, either on the left or the right. I, I think still in 2011, uh, this idea that, um, you know, that, that there had been actually this big middle class stagnation and then a lot of the working class falling off the cliff in terms of uh, incomes uh, uh, was not uh, readily accepted by a lot of people on the right. But now uh, I think that, you know, even someone like Ted Cruz admits that this is, you know, this is uh, happening. Uh, second, uh, I don't think that the issue of skewed representation as a result of that inequality is also uh, really contested. And if you actually listen to a lot of the rhetoric, both on the left and the right, uh, you know, it, it has to do with lobbyists and money and politics and the fact that, you know, ordinary Americans feel that uh, they are not adequately represented in a system in which, you know, money and a, and a layer of oligarchs plays uh, such an important um, role. The third kind of obvious difference is now there is a left-wing populist movement uh, in the form of the people that voted for Bernie Sanders, which I think have been quite uh, unanticipated, uh, you know, as little as a, as a year ago. Uh, so I can say that, you know, I was actually anticipating, I mean, that was what my article was about. Why was there no Bernie Sanders arising on the left to thunder against Wall Street and argue that, you know, they had rolled over all these little people and, um, uh, and the like. And now we, uh, now we have it. Uh, but the fourth really big change is, um, the way that the right wing populist movement has metastasized, uh, in my view and grown into something, you know, much bigger and much more powerful, I think, than the way the Tea Party looked back in, uh, 2000. Uh, 11, where it's kind of the, you know, the, the, the thing that's been reshaping uh, American politics. But, you know, to be fair, the, the populist movements have come from both the left and the right. And so now the, you know, the question, the promise of that article has now been fulfilled. We are now landed with, with, um, uh, with populism. So the question then becomes, uh, there, there, there's some important questions you know, about that evolution over the last five years. Uh, and then finally, some questions of what, what's going to happen uh, in the future. So the first issue has to do with the left-wing populism. Uh, despite the fact that Bernie Sanders made such a great showing and actually, I guess, managed to raise more money in the primary season than, than Hillary did, you know, uh, it is still, uh, I think, the case that left-wing populism is less powerful and less organized. And it's not just because Hillary won the primary. I think overall uh, it represents, you know, a, a less broad segment of the American public than the right-wing uh, version does. Now, I think that this is part of a larger phenomenon uh, having to do with the weakness of the left everywhere. Uh, in fact, um, Apart from certain parts of Latin America, <laughs> uh, I, I don't think the left has been strong in any region of the world. This is particularly true in other uh, developed democratic countries. So European social democracy that had really been the architect of the post-war European welfare state uh, has, you know, 
has disappeared as a, as a major pillar uh, of stability in country after country. The German Social Democrats are a shadow of their old selves. The British Labour Party is now in the midst of a huge labor fight that reflects the fact that its base has largely defected, uh, you know, to, uh, to the right. Uh, in France, uh, the socialists are completely adrift. Again, their base has been eaten away uh, by uh, the National Front and by right-wing uh, populist parties. The working-class voters that used to vote reliably either for communists or socialists uh, vote in a very different way. Uh, and beyond the electoral weakness, you know, there's also, I think, a more um, fundamental issue, which is the, the, the democratic left doesn't know where it's going. It doesn't really have a clear-cut agenda because I don't think the redistributionist welfare state ideal that animated it in the 50s and 60s as those welfare states were being built up um, is something that, that you know, that still uh, um, uh, people really believe is a, is a, is a uh, reasonable uh, agenda. And, you know, one demonstration of that is every time the French socialists have tried to do something uh, along those lines, they get hit by economic reality and then immediately have to retreat. It's happened to Mitterrand and it happened to Francois uh, Hollande and so forth. I think Bernie Sanders... <laughs> Uh, can get away with, you know, calling for a kind of, you know, he's sort of an unreconstructed democratic socialist from the 1960s, um, and he can get away with these kinds of old-fashioned calls for redistribution because I think most of the people supporting him are just too young, you know, they're all born after the Berlin Wall fell, and they none of them remember what either real socialism looked like or what democratic socialism ended up looking like in a lot of Europe by the 1970s and 80s. And um, and so, you know, maybe there's hope just in the fact that people are going to forget about what socialism was and, this, you know, the same uh, ideas will start coming back. But uh, I do think that, uh, you know, the absence of a very, you know, trenchant and clear-cut uh, left-wing agenda is has been really hampering them. Uh, the bigger and more pressing question really has to do with why right-wing populism uh, has taken off in a way that left-wing populism uh, has not. The answer to this, I think, is is both similar and and different in different democracies. But there is a common thread. So I think the, the issue in the United States uh, really does come directly out of the increased inequality. Um, and it has to do with the way that Americans have thought about uh, uh, inequality. The biggest uh, losers from all of the technological immigration, global globalization changes that have occurred in the United States over the preceding um you know, a generation or more than a generation now uh, has really been the old, uh, you know, white working class. I think this is pretty commonly recognized. This is the, you know, core of Trump's uh, support. I suspect in November he's going to steal away an awful lot of the rank and file union vote in industrialized states that used to go pretty reliably uh, to Democratic uh, candidates. Uh, and, you know, one big issue is why did these people vote for Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s but are now voting for uh, Donald Trump in the 
in the uh, 2010s. Uh, and that, I think, is interrelated to the other big problem with the left, which has to do with identity politics, that, you know, for at least the last generation, uh, the agenda of the left, I mean, it's not just that they didn't have a coherent economic agenda, but economics dropped off the table for them uh, almost entirely in favor of uh, different varieties of identity politics, uh, meaning, you know, um, gender, uh, you know, feminism, uh, um, race, uh, ethnicity, uh, gay rights, uh, and, you know, environmentalism is, isn't exactly a form of identity politics, but it is something favored by a particular social identity uh, out there uh, in the American uh, population. And the only identity which the left really could not relate to terribly effectively were working class uh, whites because um, I think for cultural reasons, you know, having to do with patriotism and, you know, traditional family values, religion, uh, guns uh, uh, being quite important in this country, uh, the Democratic Party simply lost touch with them. Uh, and therefore, they had been aligned and voting for Republican candidates that completely had an agenda completely contrary to their interests, that, uh, you know, the Paul Ryan, Ronald Reagan type of Democrat who's in favor of immigration and uh, free trade and uh, globalization, uh, which also reflects the interests of the, you know, the donor class and, and all the corporate uh, supporters of uh, the Republican Party, uh, basically were exposing these same workers uh, to ruthless technological and international competition, and at the same time trying to erode the social safety net that had supported them, you know, ever since the, uh, the New Deal. Uh, and therefore, um, you know, uh, there was a time bomb within the Republican Party that was uh, waiting to happen, and along comes Donald Trump and the time bomb uh, has now gone off. Uh, race and ethnicity really, I think, are an important component of this because, you know, the... So there was always this question of American exceptionalism. Why did the white working class never act the way the European white working class uh, voted? Uh, you know, this, this gets back to this age-old question of why no socialism uh, in the United States. And so the standard answers to that given by people like Seymour Martin Lipset, uh, uh, you know, and, and Louis Hartz and, and, and people coming from that tradition uh, had to do with a greater degree of economic mobility, uh, classically, or at least the perception of greater economic mobility in the United States. So everybody was a Lockean liberal that believed that even if they were poor, their, their children would be, you know, potentially rich. So that's part of it. But race also has a lot to do with it because um, the, the, the white working class, I mean, this is particularly true in the South, but it was true in other parts of the country as well, never regarded themselves as being at the bottom of the economic pyramid, that you always had African Americans and then in more recent years, Hispanic immigrants that were occupying uh, the menial positions that white workers used to do, but uh, you know now we're no longer uh, no longer doing. And the fear, you know, and, and so the opposition, I think, to some of the redistributionist policies really had to do with the fact that the perception was that they were not aimed at uh, formally 
working class people that thought of themselves as middle class and were now falling to the bottom of the economic pyramid, that all the redistributionist policies were aimed at people of a different race and ethnicity who formed a layer below them, and their fear was being sucked into that uh, lowest layer. Uh, this may also explain some of what's going on in Europe, because classically, uh, you know, before high levels of immigration into Europe, the white working class was all there was. They were at the bottom of the pyramid. And so, of course, they favored redistribution, uh, you know, from rich to poor, because they would, they would stand to be uh, the biggest beneficiaries. But now, a lot of Europe you know, uh, much more resembles the United States. You've had, you know, uh, more than a generation, high levels of uh, immigration of people who are culturally and, and racially and ethnically uh, different from the, the majority populations. Uh, and you hear the same kind of rhetoric in the European debate over immigration, that these immigrants are coming to steal our welfare benefits, meaning that, you know, redistributionist policies meant to benefit the lowest stratum, which at one time had been the white working class, were now going to uh, going to go to other uh, people. Uh, so Samuel Huntington, my um, mentor, you know, used to say that the most politically destabilizing stratum in in any society were not the poor because they're too disorganized and atomized really to organize terribly well. It's always people that are either middle class or think that they should be middle class and who are losing status uh, that, you know, have enough resources to organize, can, you know, get angry about that loss of status and the perceived loss of status is more important than, you know, your absolute level of uh, income uh, and security. Uh, and so I think that kind of explains, you know, why a lot of the thunder that had gone to the left has now gone to the uh, gone to the right. And by the way, um, it's very interesting if you compare the left-wing populism uh, of the 1930s with the left-wing populism today. Franklin, there, there's a, um, Ira Katznelson has written a very nice book on the New Deal uh, called uh, Fear Itself. And it's, it's useful to reread that or, or to relearn the history of that because his clientele, you know, things like the TVA were directly aimed at poor whites in the South. You know, the Tennessee Valley Authority in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, was dealing exactly with those white uh, populations. And if you look at the voting records, because of this race issue, because blacks at that point were not part of the Democratic coalition, or not important parts of the Democratic coalition, uh, you know, Poor rural whites in the South were voting, you know, 90% of them were voting for the Democratic Party for welfare state redistributionist parties, and now these people are all, you know, uh, 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 committed red state, uh, committed red state voters. Uh, and so that kind of is a reflection of the, you know, the social uh, transformations that have happened in the future. So, uh, what does this mean for the future? Uh, I, think that in a certain sense, the fears that we had, or I had, frankly, a year ago, that money was playing too big a role in uh, American politics are, in a certain sense, overblown, because I think both the Trump candidacy and the 
Sanders, you know, insurgency prove that actually these wealthy donors cannot simply determine uh, the outcome of American elections and that the system is actually now responding because essentially that class of white working, you know, you know white working class voters had not been adequately represented by either party, by the Democrats or the Republicans. And so now they've got a champion and they're finding their voice and I predict they're not going to go away. They're not even if the Republicans lose big in November, I don't think that that group, once mobilized, uh, is going to go away. Quite frankly, I don't think Donald Trump is going to go away either uh, if he loses. Uh, and so that's going to be a permanent feature, which is going to, you know, it, it, it's certainly directly going to affect the fate of the Republican Party because the kinds of policies favored by the elites, which had been supported by these, you know, these working class voters, are, are just not going to, they're not going to uh, cut it anymore. Uh, it is hopeful in the sense that, you know, it means that democracy in the United States is working in some sense. Uh, you know, the, the system is finally responding to, you know, these real uh, social changes. The only problem is that you need leadership uh, and uh, you need to be able to mobilize, you know, that populist anger in favor of policies that will actually help their situation rather than make it worse. And I think virtually everything that Donald Trump has advocated is actually going to make their situation worse. You know, he still wants to cut taxes on rich Americans. He does want to keep, you know, a lot of the safety net in place, which is an important break from uh, Republican uh, orthodoxy. But, you know, essentially starting a trade war, uh, you know, based on this kind of narrow uh, nationalism, economic nationalism, is... is in the end, not going to bring back any of those manufacturing jobs that um, uh, that he's uh, that he's promised. But there will be opportunities for you know a kind of new generation of politicians playing in this very different. It's a it's a different social space, and now it's going to be a completely reordered political space. And I think that um, that uh, does provide uh, opportunities for political entrepreneurship. You know, so far the entrepreneurship we've had has steered things in the wrong direction. By the way, I this is a good indication of why leadership is really important. The United States, I think, was really lucky in the 1930s. You had right-wing populists at that time as well, uh, and Roosevelt basically undercut all of them. Uh, he, he undercut the populism both from, you know, the communist left and also from the right-wing, the father of the Kauffmans and so forth. Uh, because he actually appropriated part of their agenda. I and mean, if you look at all the fascist architecture in Washington, D.C., you know, it, it's kind of a, you know, it is sort of a borrowing from the, the popular forms of fascism um, that existed uh, at that time, but he kept it within democratic bounds. Uh, and it's not too late for, you know, somebody to craft a policy of that sort now, which I think, you know, the way I would put it is, it has to be based on a kind of moderate understanding of national identity and acceptance of the fact that we are organized as a nation that does put, uh, you know, our citizens ahead of uh, other people uh, and judges things by that, but is not exclusivist, uh, remains liberal uh, and open to the world both economically uh, and uh, culturally. And so it means, in a certain sense, backing away from you know, this headlong embrace of globalization. I actually think that you could change immigration policy in 
uh, in a quite a number of ways that would ease uh, some of the concerns that people have had about uh, immigration and yet, you know, keep America connected to the rest of the world in terms of foreign policy, in terms of support for other democratic uh, uh, countries uh, around the world uh, and the like. So that's it. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I'm uh, uh, really sorry I'm not going to be there at the reception and have, uh, you know, some of the wine and cheese, but uh, thank you very much for your attention. Well, Frank, thank you so much. And, and this went off without the slightest uh, technical glitch. This worked beautifully. You looked great, high definition, wonderful. And uh, as always, this was a real treat, absolutely fascinating. Um, so uh, great. Well, thanks, Frank. I think um, we can sign off, Adam, and we'll move on to Kurt Volker. Thanks again, Frank. Um, All right. People have been introducing themselves up until now, and Kurt will introduce himself, but I'd just like to welcome him especially because he's a relatively new uh, American interest author, and in fact, his in invitation here, I was going to say inclusion, but that sounds a little haughty or something. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't sound quite right. Uh, and I won't, I won't tell you anything about the piece that we just published of Kurt's because presumably he'll refer to it, I hope. Um, and he will introduce himself briefly at length, whatever, whatever he chooses. And uh, then after Kurt speaks, we will move on to uh, Walter Russell Mead and concluding marks by Adam Garfinkel. Thank you. Well, thank you, Charles, and thank you for including me. Uh, and uh, yes, I'll say a few words about a lot of things, but let me start uh, just a, a few words of biographical introduction. So uh, my name is Kurt Volker. I am the executive director of the McCain Institute for International Leadership, which is part of Arizona State University, but based here in DC. I had a career in the US Foreign Service, uh, dealing with a variety of European political and security issues, from Lockerbie bombing to the Kosovo War uh, to uh, the war in Bosnia, NATO enlargement. Uh, eventually uh, served several years at the National Security Council at a, a senior level at the State Department dealing with European affairs and then was U.S. Ambassador to NATO in 2008 and 2009. And it's been since then that I've left the government and I've been doing a variety of other things, including establishing the McCain Institute. And I guess because it's an Institute for International Leadership, it's appropriate that that's really the theme of what I wanted to talk about is the role of leaders. And you'll hear in what I say, and if you read it, you'll see in what I wrote for the American interest, a lot of echoes of what Frank Fukuyama just said. That uh, is a question of our people feeling that their identities are under threat from a variety of different sources and that our leaders are not giving them adequate solutions. That's as simple as that. But let me say a few words about what the worries are. Uh, people are worried. Uh, immigration is a great example. It's what drove the Brexit vote. Uh, Frank just mentioned it in his comments. People feel that uh, it is unfair. That they fear that it is changing the makeup of society in ways that they're not comfortable with. It's therefore challenging identity. Uh, it may be taking away jobs, it may be soaking up social services, it may be costing 
taxpayers who are legal money to subsidize people who are not legal. It's that fear that, that, pe that our people are gripped with. When you really look at the facts, it's not a lot in terms of uh, immigration compared to Europe. Most of these people come and work and pay taxes. So it's, it's different than the perception, but the perception is what's driving. And I think that is true across all of the other issues that I'm going to mention. Uh, whether uh, we see the backlash against Muslims because a number of extremist Islamist terrorists commit terrorist acts and then do it in the name of their version of Islam, and then there's a backlash against Islam. Can't let Muslims into the country, according to, to Donald Trump, and he's built popular support as a result of that. Uh, it goes to a sense that the, the capital, Washington, has barely felt the recession compared to the rest of the country, which has suffered through a recession. This is a question of elites skimming off the country and not taking care of the people. Uh, it gets to the, the level of national debt. People hear these numbers of mounting, mounting national debt deficits. I forget the numbers, but, uh, you know, what is it, $32,000 a second or something like that? It's a ridiculous amount of money that just piles up, and people are worried about that. They don't feel it day to day. When you have an economist explain to you how you manage this, uh, it can sound okay. But from a, a purely human, popular level, people feel like things are out of control, and they feel like our leaders aren't dealing with it. Um, you can go on to the social realm, the pace of social change, challenging perceptions of what had been moral in previous generations, challenging perceptions of common sense, uh, the use and insistence on politically correct speech and the need for safe areas if there are people who speak through, that you disagree with and the, the effect of this on college campuses. It just creates a whole backlash that something is going haywire. That's the, that's the scenario. And you could play the same thing out talking about Europe and uh, the rise of populist movements in Europe and far-right movements. I would say there are some far-left movements that profit from this as well. You have Podemos in Spain. You have Soriza in Greece. Uh, there are a few others as well. So it's not a uniquely on-the-right phenomenon, but it is a rejection of the establishment and the elites. And this is where I think uh, I have a, a similar cast, but maybe a little bit sharper tone about this than uh, Frank Fukuyama does, because I actually blame our leaders for not grappling with this situation. I don't blame the voters. I don't blame people who are upset about these things. It's genuine. These, these are their lives. This is what they feel. I may not agree with it all, but it's legitimate. And they have uh, a concern. What's, what's been happening is elites, and, and here we can take, for instance, um, the British elites and the Brexit vote. They've just been telling people what's in their own interest and saying it louder and louder and insisting that if they don't go along with that answer, then it's going to be doomsday. Well, people don't react to that very well. People don't like to be told what's in their own interest. They're going to decide for themselves what they think is in their interest. And it may not be as rational and factually based as the elites in the uh, Tory party or the Labour party would want it to be. It may be just purely emotional and reactive and a sense of protecting one's identity. And that is why I think that elites, whether it's in Brussels, Berlin, London, Paris, Washington, we haven't had leaders who have genuinely understood, internalized, and communicated with people about their fears and 
given them solutions that they can have some confidence in. If they just keep getting more of the same, being told that we know better and it's all right, it just accelerates that swing of the pendulum away from the elites. And that's what we've been seeing. So I have a, a high degree of blame for our own political elites for not dealing with this. What happens in that circumstance? Then you have the rise of the populists with the simple explanations, the nativist answers, the, the tribal identity, the uh, racist uh, preferences, the religious preferences, the, the division of people in the group circling the wagons around one group or another, which is very divisive, uh, very dangerous for society, will not produce good solutions, but it gives people something to believe in that they can relate to. They can relate to that identity. They can relate to that yearning back for a past when things were more like that and it was more comfortable. Even in, in, you know, in the, the fog of hindsight, people believe that. And politicians, demagogues, populists, they can take advantage of those feelings to position themselves for political gain. That is not a new phenomenon. It's been going on for decades, if not centuries. Uh, it's not an American phenomenon uh, uniquely. It's been all over Europe. We saw this many times in the past. Uh, we've seen it even in recent years. Let us leave, leave alone Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, uh, leave alone Boris Johnson and the Brexit vote. Go back a decade. Uh, you had Marine Le Pen's father running the National Front in France with a very similar message. You had Zhirinovsky in Russia telling the Russian people a similar message to that. You had Jobbik, and before Jobbik in Hungary, you had political parties such as um, uh, the Justice and Life Party or the Smallholders Party that also had that similar way of telling people there is a, 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 a way to circle the wagons around ourselves and defend our, our own nation, our own identity. Uh, I was with a uh, European foreign minister for dinner last night and one of the fascinating things that he said, as a, and think about this, as an EU foreign minister, actually from a left party, uh, when asked, he said, we need to have a stronger EU, but what does a stronger EU mean? A stronger EU is one that is more efficient, that respects national identity, and is more responsive to the people. That is a huge turnaround from what you would have heard from a European foreign minister just two years ago about what would make the EU stronger. The idea that national identity needs to be respected as part of what will strengthen the EU is a, is a new idea. I think it's absolutely right as well, uh, but fascinating to hear that. It's not only national identity, it is cultural identity, it is social and traditional values, it is religious values, uh, it is a whole range of things that people are now fearful about, and leaders need to address those head on. I think the alternative to the populist narrative of, of circling the wagons in a, in a culturally exclusive way is actually to get back to core values about what makes a society healthy and function in ways that define what our own society was based on, what the European Enlightenment produced, what does produce the most prosperous and developed uh, and open societies in the world and does produce uh, long-term peace and stability. It's just that our leaders have been very shy about standing up for those very core values, especially in Europe. When was the last time that when you talk about human rights, the focus was on political rights 
of speech, of assembly, of uh, choice in terms of spending money, uh, as opposed to talking about minority groups of one kind or another, whether it's uh, racial or, or gender or um, religious, who need protection. That's also true, but the emphasis about basic fundamental rights of freedom for all, democracy for all, functioning market economy, equal opportunities, that language about core values in our own societies has not been the language that we've heard, especially in Europe, when you think about the, the, the statist bureaucracy that the EU created as a solution for problems instead of some of these core values. And I think it's the only uh, solution to tackling some of the populist answers instead. I think these things do resonate, including with disaffected and disenfranchised uh, elements of the public. Um, you can go speak with people and tell them that Yes, we need to preserve a cultural identity. We need to you know, keep Muslims out. We need to build a wall against immigration. We need to keep Chinese uh, goods out through higher tariffs and all that. Or you can go and give a much different kind of positive message about core values and principles of a work ethic, individual freedom, uh, individual rights, uh, limited government. And those things resonate as well. And I think it's a question of, of leaders being successful in connecting with people emotionally about those as a more uh, efficient and a, and a more long-term successful counter to what would be a populist narrative there instead. Uh, I think that um, in the end, all of these things, both, including what I'm saying, are based a little bit on rational argumentation. And one of the disadvantages that we've had is that the leaders that we've had that have been more reasonable and rational are not uh, good at connecting with people emotionally. And as we look at what we've seen in the last year in our own domestic politics, uh, what we've seen happening in Europe now, if you can't connect at an emotional level with what voters are feeling, uh, you're gonna get pushed aside. And uh, we need leaders who are able uh, much more effectively to connect with people at an emotional level, but give them realistic solutions instead of popular red meat, that's not gonna be a solution at all. So I'll pause there and I'd uh, thank you for inviting me, thank you for including me, and do read the, um, the American Interest. All right, thank you, Kurt. Your uh, glasses. Now we are uh, here. Is here is Walter Mead, Walter? Like everyone else, you're going to introduce yourself unless you want me to introduce you. But as you know, that's very dangerous. You want me to do it? No. Okay. <laughs> well, I've often been present when somebody said. Uh, the, next speaker needs no introduction. I'm not sure how often I've been around when they say the next speaker gets no introduction. But uh, you live with, you know, you take what you get. Um, all right, well, plutocracy, um, uh, what about it? You know, I, I tried to think about the last big plutocratic era we had in America and think about what's similar and what's dissimilar between this time around and the first time we went through a plutocracy. And our first real plutocratic era was sort of between about 
1870, 1920 or so, that period, um, the Gilded Age, and then going a little further in. And uh, it was a period actually a lot like ours. And if you think about it, there's some similarities and differences between these two eras that can actually, I think, help us think about things. But one thing maybe before going into that, I, I, it's worth reminding you that one of the reasons that the United States is the United States is because we are original, we were originally a failed plutocracy, a plutocracy manque. That is to say that the founding fathers, and particularly the more affluent ones like Washington and Franklin and all, were infuriated because even though they were quite successful by American colonial standards, they were really nothing in the UK. Uh, that is, you know, Franklin would sit there as the lobbyists for the uh, colonies, and people just weren't that interested. Uh, there were some colonists at the time who had no trouble, in particular the West India sugar planters, had absolutely no trouble buying all the House of Commons members that they wanted. Uh, and for them, the British theory of virtual representation was right. Each interest is weighted in our parliament due to its actual interests in our society. And the trouble was the, the tobacco planters and the merchants didn't make out the way the sugar planters had done. So it was that it was status envy by the near plutocrats of the actual plutocrats was one of the sort of fires that got the revolution going. However, a hundred years after that, 1870s, we had our first real plutocracy, and it was the result of a massive economic transition. Here's one of the similarities that what drove that plutoc wave of plutocracy. Uh, wasn't that somehow we changed all our laws in 1872 or that our national culture had transformed itself. What happened was that the industrial revolution in the national market of the United States kind of changed the rules of the game. And suddenly you could make enormous fortunes. Uh, now at the same time those rules were changing, you began to see the start of a problem that would get worse and worse over subsequent decades, which was that family farming no longer really worked as well as it used to. In 1870, almost 60% of the American people made their living on farms. And if you, ask, if you ask somebody in 1870, what do you mean by the American middle class? They sort of look at you blankly because they weren't using that vocabulary as much. But it would be the single family farmer. And this was a person who was economically independent, who succeeded on the basis of their own work, managing their own property. And for generations, the pattern had been each new generation of American, you sort of, farmer would have, I think, you know, seven kids, nine kids, and there'd be farms for all of them out on the western frontier. The government was giving free stuff to the American people in the form of cheap farming land. But after the Civil War, even as the Homestead Act extended the free land more, farming stopped working as well for, the, for most farmers. Why? Well, because farm productivity was going up, and distressingly that meant the price of agricultural commodities was going down, and it was getting harder and harder for people to make a profit on a farm. 
Furthermore, the longer the system went on, the more you were farming marginal land so that you used to get, when you got your cheap frontier farmland, it was in Ohio and Kentucky. Now it's in North Dakota. And North Dakota, for those of you who've been there, is terrific for fracking and for buffalo ranging, but it's not really that good for farming. And you would have droughts, you would have disasters, and farmers started going bust. Then you, as farming becomes more productive and family farms begin to decline, today less than 2% of Americans make their living on the land, and yet we got more food than ever. But the old American middle class of the free, of, of the free family farmer, single family farm, gradually sickened and died during this period. And it was less that a few great fortunes appeared, which they certainly did, than that the vast American middle class didn't know how to make a living anymore. The old things that used to work didn't work. And people had to migrate into the cities uh, start working on in factories themselves, and there they met a great wave of immigration. Themselves, by the way, also driven into the American labor market, in part by, the f by being driven off the land in Europe, as the situation changed in Europe. So you have two waves of labor moving into the labor market. Wages are not going up. People who were used to living as independent farmers in one system are now suddenly struggling factory workers. You know, seven days a week at 12 hours a shift, making very low wages and dirty factories being ordered around at the beck and call of bosses. And at the same time, you have these plutocrats getting very rich. So there was a lot of class conflict that came out of that, a lot of political uh, discussion that America was full at the time of sort of a combination of nostalgia for the good old days and grim dystopian predictions about the imminent future, you know, much like today. So there really are a lot of similarities between this wave of plutocracy and the last one. Um, so there's a big similarity. What about some differences? I've got a, one that's an encouraging difference between this wave of plutocracy and the last wave, and a couple that are maybe a little less encouraging. The first change, the first difference, uh, and this is, I think, good news, is that the plutocrats today as individuals are, are not nearly as plutocratic or as powerful as the first wave of plutocrats. What do I mean? Well, if you compare, for example, the net worth of the richest Americans with the budget of the federal government, to take that as a benchmark, J.P. Morgan or John D. Rockefeller used to have, John D. Rockefeller's net worth was greater than the annual budget of the United States at certain points. All right, We don't have anybody like that today. The richest plutocrats today as individuals in comparison to the power of the state are much weaker than they were in those days. For that matter, in uh, the early 20th century, J.P. Morgan was effectively the Federal Reserve Bank. That is, he was the central bank of the United States. And when there was a financial crisis, he made the decisions about who survived and who went under 
what the interest rate would be, what the plan would be. And over and over again in the 1880s and 1890s, you have cases of basically the Treasury Secretary, hat in hand, going to J.P. Morgan and a handful of other bankers asking for their help because the federal government didn't have the ability to direct the money. The federal government didn't control money, really. So the plutocrat, in, there are no individual plutocrats in the United States today who have anything like that power. Yes, they can bribe politicians. I'm sorry, give them campaign finance contributions. Um, but there you have uh, the Madisonian problem that Frank was referring to. There'll be a lot of people on other sides giving them other campaign contributions. And so if the, you know, if the, if the evil corporate sector that wants uh, the price of oil high so that the oil companies make a lot of money, well, all of their plutocrats and financial interests go in and give money on that side, but then all the car industries that make money if the price of oil is low, so the price of gas is low, so we all go out and buy gas-guzzling SUVs that make fat profits for them, they're on the other side. So the masses of plutocrats on either side of this issue have a harder time controlling um, the situation, and there's nobody who stands head and shoulders above the rest. So that's, that's a little bit of good news. There's a slight downside to it. We have a lot more plutocrats than we used to. Uh, plutocracy is almost becoming a mass phenomenon. I mean, I was talking to uh, somebody I know who's sort of worth, I guess, a couple hundred million dollars or something, and they said wistfully, you know, people like us used to be rich. Uh, and in a sense, that's right. That, that, you know, levels of wealth that a couple of generations ago you would have thought were just insanely, uh, you know, just really right up there. And yeah, you know, these people, you know, can't even get tickets to, to, to some benefits because they just don't rate. So we have a mass of plutocrats, and that gets us, I think, to a difference that is less encouraging, which I think on the whole is we have the plutocrats we've got now are not as good as the plutocrats that we used to have. Uh, we have an inferior crop of plutocrats among us. Um, I, I, let me just say, since this is being filmed and all, all the plutocrats I personally know, I don't mean you. I'm talking about other people, okay? You are different. Um, but the, uh, um, you know, you look at, at the sort of, well, I had the sort of misfortune, I suppose, or odd fortune, to go to a school that was founded to, to train plutocrats. They obviously didn't teach me the most important lesson of all, which is how to be born right. That whole parent selection thing I never got. So I'm, I'm not the child of plutocrats, but I went to school with their kids. And this was a school that was founded um, uh, actually with J.P. Morgan on the board of trustees and Teddy Roosevelt was involved. And it was to build character in future generations of plutocrats. And we're talking cold showers in the morning, you know, tin basin to wash in, um, sort of competition. Uh, uh, none of the kids could have more than $2 a week pocket money, that sort of thing, where you're separated from your parents' wealth and you have to kind of make it in the um, this sort of jungle of... Uh, 
other teenage boys who are not necessarily very nice to you and aren't necessarily impressed with your last name. They were also sort of given a tremendously focused spiritual education, studying all these Bible things and commandments and religious teaching and social responsibility, all of those things. And so out of that, you get plutocrats like, well, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Averill Harriman, Dean Acheson, sort of a whole galaxy of these people come out and are actually some of the people who in the middle of the 20th century provide the leadership that the country needed in order to, to move to a different kind of post-plutocratic or maybe intra-plutocratic age. Um, and they, they made a major contribution. They had been taught from very young that, yes, you're very wealthy. No, you didn't earn it. Yes, it's a privilege. And with that privilege comes responsibility. And we expect you to act, live up to that and exercise your responsibility well. I think our plutocrats today tend to be more into discovering themselves and, and uh, helping their kids, you know, discover their own inner child. We have a, you know, more narcissistic breed. And we don't, you know, there, there isn't the same kind of cultural capital where our leadership class is really doing the only thing that makes a leadership class tolerable or worthwhile, which is to say leading. And so we have one of the curses of our plutocratic age is an insufficiently responsible plutocracy. And so maybe it's time to start rounding up their kids and putting them in horrible boarding schools where they'll have to go through absolute misery all during their adolescence, and then maybe that'll ground them a little bit more. So that's a problem. Then, then there is another, I think, problem that is also a bit discouraging, a difference between our plutocratic age and past ones, and that is that our plutocracy is global, and a lot of that global plutocracy is actually a kleptocracy. You know, one can object to how rich Warren Buffett is, or at least one can wish that one were as rich as Warren Buffett is. One can say, Bill Gates, you're so darn rich. Um, you've lost all touch with real people like me. Um, but, you know, they made their money in a reasonably honest way. They developed products, they built businesses, or even they just inherited it from 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 ancestors are but we are now confronting plutocrat kleptocratic plutocrats who've come from the former soviet union who've come from china where the the amassing of great wealth is almost completely detached from any kind of law of god or man where it is a scramble for wealth where the unscrupulous and the smartest, the ones with the sharpest edge, amass tremendous wealth, and then up they appear over here among us. And unfortunately, all too often, some of our banks, some of our other institutions are ready to receive that money, domesticate that money, and find ways for that money to get into our own power structures influence policy, uh, affect the way we deliberate here. 
So we have, now there were certainly, there was an international class of rich people during this 19th century, and if you don't believe me, go read the novels of Henry James. There's plenty of it. And wealth has always had a tendency to be global. But again, the wealth was a little bit more associated with either the kinds of um, uh, aristocratic origins or some kind of business origin. You haven't seen, you certainly saw a certain amount of looting, say, in the, in the Second Empire, a bit of political corruption, but not on the scale of what we've seen in the former Soviet Union, where corruption isn't just a way of doing business, it is business. Those things are more depressing. If we look at these eras, these two eras in, in plutocracy, I think the most important thing, though, is not the plutocrats in either era. Yes, they matter, they have influence, and whether they're good or bad can make a difference. But what was, re what was really important in ending the first age of plutocracy and what made it a difficult experience for most Americans wasn't that other people were getting rich, but that the middle class wasn't doing well. People had grown up thinking that to be an independent American in the middle class meant owning a farm and working the farm and living by the, by the result of your own labor. You lose that economic foundation. You find yourself working in a city, in a factory, taking orders from people without the same kind of status or recognition, and your living standard is down. There was a, a destruction not just of the economic stability and security of the middle class. There was an erosion of its kind of moral and cultural and social foundations. We are seeing that today. Again, what we're seeing is that what's happening in the sort of manufacturing and clerical economy is more or less parallel to what happened the first time around in the, in the agricultural economy. We've gone from about over 30% of the labor force working in manufacturing to about, I think, under 9% of the labor force is now working in manufacturing since the 1970s. We don't keep the same kind of statistics but all the sort of routine clerical work, I see many people here like me are old enough to remember that, when, that in many offices you would see these large typing pools full of clerical workers doing essentially data entry on, on typewriters. That's all gone. Um, we, are, we are seeing an erosion of the kinds of jobs that the average American middle class relied on for its, to make a living, for its self-respect, for holding its own in, in society. And as that happens, you see an erosion of the sort of, you know, people don't know how to bring up their kids, they're not bringing their kids up as well, perhaps, their families are falling apart. These things we actually saw in that first era. You read about what people write was going on in the cities, the, the cities of the early industrial age, of that Gilded Age period, uh, street children, crime, violence, that sort of thing. This is all coming back to us now. Again, I think then as now, ultimately the answer is going to be the same, which is the answer to the problems of plutocracy 
isn't so much to fix the prop, fix plutocracy as it is to fix the middle class. What is the foundation for the next era of the middle class? We went from single family farm to single family home. What comes next? What is the next American middle class? It used to be agricultural, then it was industrial. Where will the bulk of the American people be making their living in the future and how? This, I think, is fundamentally the question that we have to answer as a society. If we do that, I think what we'll see is the revival of a middle class that is conscious of its own interests politically, that has a sense of the way it wants the country to go, and elites and wealthy people will really you know, have to work with that system. It's not right now, I think, that the plutocrats are strong. It's that the rest of society is weak. And that's, I, I, I would suggest to you, is the condition that we really need to work to remedy. Thank you very much. I get no introduction, but I can introduce myself in one sentence. I am Adam Garfinkel, and I am the editor of the American Interest. I'm the only editor that the magazine has ever had since it was formed about 11 plus years ago. And I have to tell you that um, when I walked into this venue, uh, of course I saw these two covers um, up here, but outside you see, uh, leaning against the wall, on the other side of the partition, you see a whole lot of other covers, not all the covers by any stretch of the imagination, but blown up uh, posters of a lot of the covers that we've done for many, many years. And, I, you know, uh, when I see that, first of all, I feel pretty old because 11 and a half years of, uh, of putting out this magazine is uh, uh, as wonderful and educational and uh, enlightening to me as it's been. It's been a lot of work. And there are a couple people in the room, staff people, who've been with the magazine from the very beginning. I think I saw Dan Canelli. Is still here, Dan? Did he? He's in the, probably getting something to eat. But, um, and Charles, of course, is the publisher who's been behind this uh, very generously from the very start. It's very edifying. And I have to say, um, you know, we, we're in Washington here. We go around, we go around, uh, we nomad around. Um, the think tank world, we, we, we eat this, we drink that, we listen to this, we talk to this person. And maybe it's just, maybe it's just me, but it seems to me that what we've heard in this program, starting with Tyler uh, this morning and winding around through um, Jeffrey and Nils and Frank and Walter um, and Kurt, uh, I don't actually recall hearing a higher quality level of discussion in Washington than what I've heard today. And it's it's very daunting. My job, uh, given to me by the publisher, was to kind of sum up um, what had gone before. Uh, I think if you've been here all day, you would you would realize how how very difficult it is because people have been at the subject from all kinds of angles. But uh, uh, it's not. I don't see how I sum it up because it, it's not summable. Uh, we are dealing here with a series of open-ended problems. Um, there are many many pieces to the problems, uh, and. Uh, I don't know how to sum them up, so I thought what I'd do instead was just make a couple of my own comments, and I don't want to speak for very long uh, on this because I know that 
but by now everyone's probably ready for a little exercise and um, some more libation. But um, I just want to make a few comments about some of the things we've heard today and then some of the things that we haven't heard. Um, there was a scintilla of disagreement, I guess you would say, earlier on in the program this morning about the salience of the, the, the nature of and the salience of inequality and what all that has to do with plutocracy. And uh, it's very hard when you're giving oral presentations to be as precise as you can be in writing. But it, it seems to me, just for what it's worth, probably not much, it seems to me that, um, as Frank said from Palo Alto, there, there's really no, there's not much disagreement about the inequality of statistics. Although I don't trust anybody with numbers anymore from experience. But be that, be that as it may, uh, there's not a lot of disagreement about the numbers. There's some disagreement about what the numbers mean. Uh, if you put a sociological filter on some of the numbers, um, some of the claims made about what they mean um, uh, erode. They don't disappear, but they erode. Um, but that's not, my, that's not my issue. My question is, what's the inequality data got to do with plutocracy? And here, it seems to me that what the people that I call the Trump and proletariat should excuse the expression. Uh, the Trump and proletariat are not confused and angry because of their concerns about, about uh, inequality. And here I think I agree with Tyler, basically, that most inequality, when people perceive that, is, is local. I don't think that's it. I don't think people actually know these numbers unless they are very unusual members of the Trump and proletariat. As, as Kurt said, this is an emotional thing. I think what you've got here, and Frank, Frank mentioned this, what you've got is, is an erosion of, of, uh, of, of class status. And the one word I haven't heard today, uh, but which I would have heard uh, if I were in Europe, uh, you know, 70 or 80 years ago, or, or 170 years ago, is the word déclassé. It's a French word. But it basically means the downward mobility of entire social classes. And what happens when, for whatever reason, you have large numbers of people who feel themselves and who are downwardly mobile relative to other, other sectors of a society. What happens politically? What are the political implications of that kind of phenomenon? Now, sometimes you'll hear, if you look at the mainstream press, sometimes you'll see references back to Weimar. All right? But uh, you very rarely read anything that goes any, historically any deeper than that. But the phenomenon of déclassé uh, cycles in Europe Goes back much much longer than that, and I've been I've been surprised really in the last couple of couple of months at the historical shallowness of the analysis that most of us are able to read in in the literature. But um, so what happens to people when they lose class status? Uh, they become often become confused and frightened. They often look for scapegoats. They start thinking dualistically, and they they depending on the what's you know, what kind, of, what kind of ideas are floating around in the ambient intellectual environment, they often come up with extremely nefarious notions. I mean, the most famous example of a déclassé aristocrat is Joseph de Gobineau, who is the, the father of modern racism and anti-Semitism. So when people point to the Trump and proletariat and their, their man on their leader, Donald Trump, as neo-fascist, it's not really fascism. It's, it's, kind, of the, it's kind of the wrong word. Um, but it, is, but it's, it seems to me it's clearly an example of uh, uh, the ruminations of a déclassé epoch and the kinds of opportunistic leaders that can manage to harvest the confusion and uh, the fears and the anger that always happen when there is massive downward motion 
in a social class. Now, as others have said, in the United States, every place is a little different. In the United States, it's tinged with racial and ethnic, and to some extent, religious overtones. That's always been part of the American experience. I think that's true. But I don't think any of this has to do with inequality. I mean, I think inequality is a problem. One can argue how much of a problem and in what ways it's a problem. But I don't see a very direct connection between inequality, which is a problem in its own right, and the plutocratic issues, which I think is also a problem, but has a different origin and a different mechanism. And I wanted to mention something about the mechanism. When people talk about, people have been talking about plutocracy, there was a senator from, I think it was South Dakota or North Dakota, I forget, Pettigrew, wrote a book called Plutocracy Triumphant. This was at the tail end of the first Gilded Age. I think the book was published in 1921 or 22, something like that. I think he was one of the first senators from the Dakotas, because they weren't in the union before this guy became a senator. So he lists all the egregious sins of the railroad barons and so on and so forth. And he talks about the origins of the Grange movement and the origins of the Interstate Commerce Commission, all the history that I wish people knew and hope that they do and don't always believe that we do anymore. Went through this, you know, that was a very popular book. There were a couple of Southern congressmen who wrote books. They were bestsellers in the 1920s and so forth. So we've been through this before, this welling up before. Walter covered it, I think, very nicely. But what are the mechanisms and how have they changed? It seemed when I wrote my piece for this issue that's on the wall there, I tried to think through just how exactly money translates into political influence. I tried to create some sort of a kind of a thumbnail typology of how this works. And I came up with basically a quadripartite typology. And I read the piece again recently. I tried to think, you know, could I improve my thinking? If I were writing this piece now five years later, given all that's happened, would I do it differently? And the answer is no, which means either that I had a pretty good run when I wrote it or that I've been stagnating intellectually since I wrote it. I don't know which. But here are the four ways that, the four mechanisms that plutocracy works through that translates money into political influence. So the first method is affecting legislation and regulatory writing in such a way that all the costs, or as many of the costs as possible, of regulating industry get passed on to the public rather than to the industries being regulated. That's a very popular mechanism. That's a lot of what lobbying does from corporate and financial sector. It offloads the costs of the transactional costs of regulation from the industries being regulated onto the public wheel. The second is to essentially shape laws and also accounting procedures in such a way as, of course, especially the tax code, but not only the tax code, in such a way that the privileges of money are maintained. So in other words, the nest egg, the reservoir of money that provides the political power can be protected through essentially suborning the political process to create laws that are favorable to the preservation of that money. Now, this doesn't just affect the tax code. There are lots of other ways that laws and reg writing and accountancy rules 
do this. And I want to refer to an article that I hope all of you have seen, but one never knows, an article by my friend Steve Tellis, which appeared in the, I think it was the fall 2015 issue of National Affairs. National Affairs, as you know, I can say that at the Hudson, it's considered a conservative magazine. And the editor, Yuval Levin, I think was right and brave to publish this article, which is called The Scourge of Upward Redistribution, in which Professor Tellis shows how through a whole variety of rent-seeking and licensing and barriers to entry kinds of behavior produced by plutocratic penetration of the legal system and the regulatory writing system has basically created upward redistribution in the American economy, where money flows up to people who are not necessarily to the 1%, but that money basically flows up. So we have this very strange kind of deal here where we have a kind of a welfare state, not the same as Europe, but we have a welfare state. We have a redistributionist state. And if you add up the benefits of redistribution and you add up non-monetarized benefits from your employer and things like that, again, the inequality data evens out, not at the top, but more or less in the middle. But the odd thing is that even as we're redistributing resources from the middle down to poorer people, we are redistributing more resources from the middle up to richer people and creating barriers to entry and creating all sorts of rent-seeking niches in the economy that are part now of the systematic structure of the American political economy. The third mechanism of how plutocracy translates money into power is mainly focused on lobbying to make sure that the political process itself is open to the influence of money. The whole campaign finance portfolio is what I'm talking about here. And the way that money from lobbyists, from money, have managed to essentially increase the porosity of the political system to the influence of money. Now, of course, the Supreme Court has only mentioned Citizens United before. That, of course, is the apex of this. It wasn't that money suborned the Supreme Court. The Roberts Court did this all by itself. And I personally consider Citizens United to be the worst Supreme Court decision since Dred Scott. It's got to go back a long way. But I think it was just a catastrophic decision. And, again, the influence of Citizens United, I think, is already manifest in all the soft money pack. You can't identify the sources of all this money flowing in. Maybe Walter's right that the plutocrats really aren't the problem and that it's the weakness of the middle class. It could be, but it's still a problem. And then, fourth, the fourth mechanism is lobbying to make sure to validate maximum feasible lobbying. All right? There are other democracies, most of the democracies of Europe, where the kind of sway that lobbyists have are simply not allowed. It's against the law to do certain things. But part of plutocratic lobbying is to make sure that they have the right plutocratic lobby in order to do the other three things I already mentioned. So I tried to work out a typology of how this actually functions in the political system. And it seems to me that if you want to get a handle on limiting or moderating the effects of money on American politics, you've got to understand how these four functions work and intertwine. And if you want to do something about it, that's the way you have to think about it. You think about it in terms of the functionality of how money translates into political power. Otherwise, I just want to – I saw the movie, The Big Short, 
pretty recently. I had the book by Michael Lewis. It's been sitting on my shelf for, I don't know, <laughs> maybe a year. I, I, I never quite got around to it, you know. Do you realize, I just want to just parenthetically, do you realize that the, word, the words busy and the words lazy are actually synonyms? Do you know that? There's some people who think they're busy, but they're lazy. There are other people who think they're lazy, but they're actually busy. Uh, I don't know what I am. All I know is I didn't get around to reading the book. But anyway, I saw the movie. I saw the movie. And uh, I, I want to make two comments uh, uh, come into my head as a result of having seen this. One is as follows. You know, 19, uh, 2007 is the beginning of the subprime crisis. 2008, 2009 plays out. Uh, why? Well, you know, as Tyler said earlier in, in, his, in his insane perfect storm scenario, which I thought was very entertaining and a little frightening, but still entertaining, um, you know, he mentioned kind of in passing uh, the China trade stuff. I'd like to mention it right now a little bit less in passing because there's some, there's some fairly arresting data. Again, I don't trust numbers, but there's some fairly arresting data that one can generally speak of. So in the 1999, I believe it was, uh, the United States extended most favored nation status to China, and in the year 2000, it was made permanent. Uh, as a result of uh, these political uh, deals, in uh, I think it was April 2001, right at the very beginning of the Bush administration, China entered the WTO. Now, look at what happened between uh, 2001, 2000, 2001, and about a decade later, 2011. Uh, you could actually look up the, the changes in the deficit numbers, uh, the trade deficits. The, uh, the differences is galactic, but that's not really important. What's important is the derangement of the American labor profile. It was already being somewhat deranged going back to the 70s, but the rapidity of uh, the derangement shows in the fact that between about 2000, 2001, and 2011, the number of manufacturing jobs in the United States was reduced by 31.6%. That's almost a third in less than a decade. That is an enormous shock to uh, the, the, the labor profile in the United States, really an enormous shock. So what happens as a result of this? Um, in 2007-2008, suddenly, you know, the, the housing bubble uh, is no longer sustainable. People can't make uh, their payments uh, because they, they're losing their jobs because the um, deterioration of the manufacturing sector, of course, has second and third order knock-on effects in the rest of the economy. Um, we're sort of turning into a little bit of a, an economic swoon. And uh, of course, uh, the demand for housing uh, uh, is reduced as a result of this, so the prices are not going up. So you don't have, you can't, you can't you know, like in the movie, it was, there's, there's some stripper out in Las Vegas who's, who's like, who, who owns five homes but they're all adjustable rate mortgages, and she's paying a pittance on these things. She owns five homes in a condo, as I recall from the movie. So all of a sudden, the arm is going to, you know, the, the adjustable rate go, is going to kick in, and she's going to, all of her payments are going to go up by 200%. So what do you do at that point? Well, she said, well, my, my agent said, you, you just refinance. But you can't refinance a mortgage that's going to be underwater. So in order to be able to, to do that, the, 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 the price of the house has to keep rising enough in order to get underneath of the cost of the refinance. If it doesn't, if the, the prices stagnate, you can't refinance and you're screwed. And of course, that's what happened uh, to an awful lot of people. Something like, I think it was six, six million families lost their homes as a result of this, right? So there's a connection between the 
loss of manufacturing jobs, which you're starting to see really start to bite pretty hard in the economy by 2007, and the onset of the subprime and the housing crisis. There are other factors, too, you know, the fraudulence in the security market, all kinds of reasons. But there's a connection, it seems to me, between, you know, why did the housing crisis happen when it happened? It happened in part because people were starting to lose their jobs and they couldn't make their payments, and it cascaded, all right? So it's not just one thing or the other. I think both things were involved. So um, uh, right on time, I mean, right on time, you have Occupy Wall Street, which is the prolegomenon, so to speak, of the Sanders campaign, and you have the Tea Party uh, right around the same time, which is the prolegomenon to the, you know, the transmogrified, uh, lumpen proletariat, uh, Trump a hostile taker over of the Republican Party. All this is right on time, right on schedule. I mean, to me, it's not, it's not the slightest bit mysterious. It tracks along exactly the way you think it would. <laughs> so um, I tend to think that, uh, just to summarize, that uh, status and security and downward class mobility explains a whole lot more of the anger and the character of our political politics right now than, than inequality or the inequality data. Again, not denying that that is a separate and important problem. And, and I think that there's a connection between the, uh, the, 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 the freeing of capital to Rome. Capital does not obey Ricardo's law the same way that goods and services do, and it causes lots of trouble. I think there's a connection between the globalization piece, on the one hand, and, and the, economic, the economic dive and the, 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 the erosion of confidence that, that we had experienced back then uh, and that undermined confidence in the political class that's never recovered. And finally, toward the end of the movie, this is the second, second riff off the movie, toward the end of the movie, uh, the actor who plays uh, Mark Baum, I don't know the actor's names, I really, I'm, I'm a complete terminal primitive when it comes to Hollywood stuff, I just don't remember any of that stuff. But the actor who plays, very convincingly, who plays Mark Baum, gets up and gives a speech uh, in a kind of a, a seminar. And there's a guy named Miller who at the time was, uh, I think, the head of Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns had about three or four days to live at the point where, you know, this, this scene um, plays in the movie. And, in the, and they swear to God this actually happened. This was, not, this was not just made up. This actually happened. And Mark Baum gets up and he says that... The, uh, the, the whole housing market and the securitization market and what the rating agencies were doing, right, that this was all basically fraud. This was fraudulent, okay? But, he, but Mark Baum in the movie, and, doesn't, and in real life, doesn't leave it at this, okay? He says, you know, it's not just fraud is going on in the housing market and in the, in the, in the banks and in the economy. It's going on everywhere. I mean, that was around the time that, you know, the, the, the doping uh, um, scandal broke in baseball uh, with all the synthetic stuff. And he, he kind of give examples throughout, throughout the, the culture of how people had simply started doing bad things. Now, I've given this a name. <clears throat> I, call, I, call, I call this a scoundrel cascade. And what I mean by a scoundrel cascade is as follows. It's essentially a positional competition problem. If you are in an economic niche somewhere in the economy, anywhere in the economy, and people start to do things that are a little bit shady and smarmy, you, and it's, in, a, in, a, in a tight market, you feel like if you don't do some of the same shady and smarmy things, you'll be put at a competitive disadvantage. So first you've got one or two people doing things that are sort of below, below accepted standards. And then you get, from two you get eight, and then you get 64, and then you get whatever the next exponential, I don't, I'm not really good at math. So you get this cascade of of uh, you know subordinate behavior 
uh, on the basis of this competitive, you know, positional, this positional competition. And one of our board members, who I wish were here today, Robert Frank at Cornell, a behavioral economist, writes about this stuff in his book called Falling Behind. It's a very, inter very interesting book. Um, it seems to me that there are more scoundrel cascades throughout various sectors of our, of our culture today than there were in the past. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to idealize the 19th century. It wasn't like Americans were all a bunch of Boy Scouts or anything years ago. There's always been a lot of hoodwinking and snake oil salesmen uh, in, in this country. Uh, you know, the get-rich-quick stuff that Americans have done had been just as much apple pie as the Puritans up in New England. But it just seems to me that, that basic standards of, of, of ethical behavior have, uh, in many parts of the, of, the, of the culture, have tanked, and we are seeing more scoundrel cascades now than we used to. So to me, it's not just about the economy, and it's not just about plutocrats. It's about the whole culture. And it seems to me that if you could say that in 2007 and 2008 that you were seeing a development in which the housing market and the bank in, banking industry were essentially fraudulent. I think I could make the claim now that what we are seeing with the Trump and proletariat and um, you know the, the Clinton Foundation machine is now we're, 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 we are leading into a situation where the entire political system ha is becoming fraudulent, and it's it's um, it's daunting. So let me end there and just say that the magazine will not stop um, uh, on this particular portfolio. Uh, we're going to keep doing political economy issues. We're going to keep pointing fingers where we can find something to point at. And let me just um, close by saying we started the magazine, and Frank, Frank was uh, integral to this, and so was Walter and others. We decided that the magazine had to be a problem-solving magazine. It couldn't be a school of thought magazine. It couldn't be an ideological magazine. The only thing I ever agreed with Jerry Rubin about was when he said that ideology is a brain disease. Right? The idea was identify a problem, throw away the baggage of the Cold War period, which was just getting in our way and tripping us up, and try to focus on the problem. And we didn't care where intelligent discussion of the problem came from. We didn't care if it came from the left, it came from the right, it came from out of, we don't care, all right? We don't really care about labels and slogans and, 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 and political button pushing. We care about the problems, uh, their difficulty, and if we can start a conversation about these things, a serious conversation, We've never cared where the authors come from, and that's still the way it is, and still the way it's going to be as long as I am the editor of the magazine. Thank you so much for joining us in this program. Appreciate it.